Hey guys, what's up? It is week 234, and uh, what would a show be without corrections? I know that a lot of people love the corrections, so let's hop right into them. The first one is actually a correction for, um, last week I mentioned Hell Knight, and it had Timothy Van Patten. I knew there was 467 Van Pattens, but uh, this actually was Vincent Van Patten. Timothy Mc, uh, Van Patten, Van Patten, I can't even say the last name anymore. I'll be correction next week, correcting their name. But uh, it was uh, Tim Van Patten's brother, Vince Van Patten. I'm sorry, I like I made a joke when somebody commented, I was like, at least I didn't confuse him with Dick Van Patten. That one's a little easier. But uh, yeah, I knew that the Van Patten was a big family, but man, Vincent looked a lot like... Uh, um, Tim to me, almost identical, which is obvious. They should. They are brothers. But my bad. I just almost assumed just seeing the Van Patten name and not even registering that it was his brother. So let's hop into the reviews. These uh, opening couple are going to be kind of brief. But every time I say that, I'm noticing a pattern. I'm like, Predator is going to be a brief review. 15 minutes later, it's like, I like when he shoots the guy. So I'm never brief. Um, and then when I say, uh, I, I like, I have a lot to say sometimes the reviews last two minutes. So I have no idea what time this is going to go. I, I'm hoping it's going to be short because we're going to cover it on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror for Italian Horror Month. Uh, JP picked at Tony Marighetti. Um, I always say his last name wrong. But uh, yeah, this is the first one on there. And this is The Long Hair of Death by Antonio Marighetti or Marighetti or whatever, Marighetti. And this was made in 1964. And uh, yeah, it has a couple familiar faces in here. Then most notable to me, of course, is Barbara Steele. Barbara Steele uh, basically got her start in our, her her fame or her horror fame in being in an Italian gothic horror films from uh, the 60s. First, uh, the first one was Black Sabbath by Mario Bava, which is kind of like the quintessential uh, uh, Italian uh, gothic horror film. She would later go on to do An Angel for Satan, which I covered last week, which was actually her last um, film uh, in Italy, I believe. And that one's really good, really gothic. This one was done in between. This is 1964. There's a couple others, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Um, but this one was done in 1964. It's called The Long Hair of Death, like I said. And the title, you would think, is going to be kind of like Giallo-esque, but no, it's in the style of kind of the gothic horror horror, horror uh, tale and just we we just covered 1970 on 22 shots you guys know i just covered a bunch of 1970 movies and this felt a lot like that time frame you know the witchcraft the superstition it's uh it's beautiful looking movie like i said it's black and white and a lot of times those if they're, they're done well they usually register really especially on blu-ray surprisingly a lot of people would think oh it's gonna look terrible but the black and white stuff looks like some of the best stuff um so we have like two timelines going on here that leaves a couple actresses in here getting to play dual roles one of which is Barbara Steele. So, in the opening of this film, this a woman named Carmilla Carstein. Oh, everybody knows that name from the famous, uh, the famous uh, vampire story that was actually, I think, written even before Dracula. Um, they would go on to make many renditions of Carmilla. She would pop up in a lot of literature. A lot of, I meant more, you know, like she pops up in some literature stuff, like um, referenced in literature, I should say. But she's in a lot of films, even Vampire Hunter D. But of course, she's in the Vampire Lovers, and then the Hammer would go on to do the Carstein trilogy. But you know, it's pretty much the the King Vampire vampire the king female vampire the first one so that i can register in literature or whatever 
So uh, basically her name is Carmelia Karstein and they think she's a witch or she's been accused of it from kind of a rich nobleman or his, his nephew or something along those lines. Of course it's horseshit. We know it is. Um, she's burned at the stake. Her daughter witnesses it. And uh, later we kind of fast forward into the future. Um, and they had put a plot of uh, Barbara Steele is also the older sister. Both sisters kind of witnesses. Barbara Steele's trying to stop it. What's happening is she's taken advantage of and she's kind of uh, offed as well to kind of cover up that secret that the kind of the king or the uh, person in power, I always just assume they're kings in these movies, kind of used her to him and threw her away. So, uh, yeah, they're pretty much cursed. While she's being burned alive like a good witch, uh, she curses them like any, anybody would or at least try to scare them to curse them. And, of course, one night Barbara Steele comes back and uh, nobody really knows what happened to her exactly except one person, but... It's really kind of brilliant in that way. Uh, and, and right away, kind of spooky things start to happen, and people are kind of driven mad. And, uh, yeah, it's just a nice little gothic story. Well done. Um, like I said, I don't want to get too much into this one, except that I thought it was very enjoyable. I thought the first act, the setup, was actually the strongest. I thought that stuff was all brilliant. And then we kind of get to the second and third act. It, it's not as strong, but uh, it ended in a, in a fairly decent number with just desserts and everything, so I could dig it. That's the long hair of death. Rayo did a good job cleaning this one up. Okay, the next one here by Antonio Merligretti is uh, Killer Fish. Uh, yeah, starring a bunch of... This is a great uh, kind of B-movie cast. And years ago, I did cover this one, and I've always had a soft spot for it, so I didn't uh, get a chance to rewatch it until now. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, part heist movie, part disaster movie, and part killer fish movie or killer animal movie. It's got a really fun cast, especially uh, for this time. You got Lee Majors. Uh, Lee Majors! Uh, <laughs> you got uh, James Franciscus, Karen Black, um, Frank Pesh. Uh, Anthony Steffen. Oh, geez. There's a couple other people that pop up in here that you may recognize. Um, it's got, uh, geez, what is the uh, the guy from Total Recall who's like uh, the heavy set guy? He's also in Arachnophobia. He's got the great line in uh, Total Recall. He's like, you'll be lobotomized. He's in this as a, a flamboyant photographer um, over the top, but you know, for 1978, 79, it's very much a product of its time, the comedy and that kind of, uh, you know, deal. So Lee Majors, James Francis. Karen Black and a couple others uh, set up this major heist where they use a bunch of miniatures to set up this distraction in, in Meridigetti style and uh, there's like train and all this kind of explosions so they steal these diamonds and they decide to toss them and they're in Brazil I should mention they decide to toss them in this kind of dam um, and, and come back for them 60 days later because you know the heat is on on the street as they say and uh, they want to lay low for a while uh, but there is a couple uh, you know backstabbing people here and some people decide to try to go get the diamonds and the gems early but what happens is there's killer fish in the dam but how the hell did they get there anyways a natural disaster strikes and the dam is opened up and all the killer fish end up everywhere so uh yeah it's super entertaining lee majors and james francis this got a lot of good back and forth their dialogue is like lightweight kind of bond stuff going on and there's this kind of gambling game that everybody's playing and uh james franciscus loses and he says you know i guess i underestimated you and that's kind of the sum you know that whole like uh interaction between them sums up the entire movie but yeah a couple people bite it the the comedy is a product of its time but it doesn't come across too harsh or anything like that i, I found it kind of funny and enjoyable 
enjoyable. Uh, yeah, the characters are over the top. Anthony Steffen's really fun in here as the boat driver. I liked all the characters. Karen Black is good. Um, Lee Majors is a, is a good leading man. He fits the role very well. I, I like. I enjoyed him in this one. And I'm not super familiar with him. I know he's a $6 million man, and he pops up in Scrooge, just kind of a gag joke, and some other movies here and there. And I know his son popped up in Ice Cream Man. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's enjoyable. I mostly know him from Killer Fish. Um, there's a nice little uh, supplemental feature on here with Frank Pesh and William Lustig. William Lustig had nothing to do with this movie. This is one of Frank Pesh's earliest roles. And uh, Lustig is a friend of his. As you know, Frank Pesh will pop up in, I think, uh, Maniac Cop 1 and 2 is different characters. I think he's in 1 and 2. He's in, he's in 2 of them. No, he's in 1 and 3, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe 2 and 3. He's in a couple of them. So anyways, it's basically William Lustig and Frank Pesh sitting down for uh, dinner, and they're talking for an hour. And uh, William Lustig is one of the most interesting guys to hear talk about films or their history of films or just New York City around the time he was making cinema or, or all over the place because he knows everybody. He knows all these great stories. He's good friends with Joe Spinell and Frank Pesh. And Frank Pesh is one of those guys, too. So he has all this information. And they're busting each other's balls going back and forth. And it's just very funny. Frank Pesh talking about standing in for uh, getting fired, standing in for De Niro, Sinatra, and Roy Scheider, all in, like, his first role or first jobs on the site. And it's very funny. He's like, he said he was uh, basically talking to Frank Sinatra. He's like, oh, I love that song. And Frank Sinatra started bullshitting with him. And he basically got in trouble for just, like, uh, distracting Frank Sinatra so much that they were just, like, kind of bullshitting too much. So he's like, this, this guy. I can't be a stand because he's just talking to him all day. It's just very fun stories like that. Just stuff that just made me happy. I can listen to William Lustig and Frank Pesh and these guys, guys like this, talk about, you know, uh, films and, and being on set all day. You know, they should just have a podcast. Lustig would be the best podcaster of all time. He'd be like, uh, and he's got such a wonderful voice. Anyways, uh, it's, a, it's a good, fun movie. Uh, lots of stuff going on. I find it vastly enjoyable. So when I went to go rate it, I know I always bring in the letterbox in here, and I'm looking at the ratings, and I understand this is an Academy Award winning movie. It's a B movie. I'm seeing all these ratings of like ones and twos and half stars, and then I, I start to register, oh yeah, well, uh, this I guess this played on Mystery Science Theater 2K or something like that, 3000 or whatever the hell it is. And as a kid, I never really dug into that show. I, I didn't hate it as an adult or a kid. I don't have much opinions about it, but I have one negative thing about the show in general. Um, if a movie plays on Mystery Science Theater, and it gets the treatment. Um, every single person that ever saw it at Mystery Science Theater assumes the movie is complete trash, even if it's vastly entertaining. And they, they, they trash it into the sense that it's not even a worth entertaining movie. So they just like, oh, this is the garbagest movie ever because that was Mystery Science Theater. Yeah, and I can't develop my own opinions. Like, when I was a kid, I never sought out movies to watch because I thought they would be so bad they're good. Like, that was never my MO. I was watch I was trying to find movies that I thought I would enjoy. The weirder, the better. The crazier, the better. As I got older, I kind of understood that to a certain extent, that so bad it's good, but it's not really my intention. And I think that that whole idea of trying to make a movie so bad on purpose that it's entertaining was probably helped along by Mystery Science Theater because they saw that, that people could really enjoy bad movies, but when it's done on purpose, it loses all all its enjoyment for me at least but uh, I, I just see all these people bad mouthing this movie that just have absolutely no idea what our true turds are because I mean Killer Fish I, I vastly enjoy I mean yes 
is it going to be and people rate differently you know they might enjoy the movie and love it but then they go to rate it and like this is terrible but i love it i'm going to give it a two but i don't do that if i enjoy the fucking movie i'm giving it a good rating and i don't think the movie's embarrassingly bad or anything like that i know the miniatures aren't state-of-the-art or anything but they're solid and they, they they were fine enough for me any movie that has killer fish that sneak under the raft and bite somebody's fingers is, is a winner for me any movie that has uh you know all this crazy stuff going on you know i have adhd if you guys didn't notice that and um this movie jumping all over the place is, is it's good for me so killer fish uh from scorpion releasing put that one out i don't know if it's still in print i think it is so just go pick it up if you're interested no subtitles unfortunately but uh it looks pretty good and it sounds pretty good okay the next one uh i just was sitting around and my friend was over so i just started playing something on my plex and uh, I have the disc as well. So it just was one of those, well, let's put it on for a few minutes. And I've seen this movie a couple times, so I knew I always liked it. And this is Slashers. If anybody's seen the movie, um, the next like three minutes of this review, if not the entire review, will me be me just dancing to the theme music. So just go ahead and skip this review. Anyways, this movie Slashers here, it's by a, a, a French-Canadian director or just Canadian director. His last name is French. His name is French. I never pronounce his name right, but it's Maurice uh, Diverot or Diverot. Um, and this guy did um, another one that was really good called End of the Line in 2007. This was made in 2001. He did another movie, Lady of the Lake, which I never did get a chance to see. And Blood Symbol from the 90s, which I, I've not watched, which I have a VHS sitting around here. So we're looking right at you, VHS. I don't know why I let you guys know that. <laughs> but Slashers is um, a movie that I, I saw, I don't know when I initially saw this one. Uh, very young, probably in high school sometime. And uh, I, I always enjoyed it. It's got a, a low budget quality. It, it's not a particularly great looking movie, of course. But the idea is fun enough. Essentially, this is Running Man done in a slasher style. So there's this game show in Japan. And uh, what they do is they have these kind of Americanized slashers on the show that kill contestants. The contestants try to survive it, and it's all done in these kind of slasher ways. Usually it's Japanese kind of people that are running through it, but this is the first all-American edition. So we have six American contestants that are super over-the-top. It's Canadian, so like you can hear some of their accents be very Canadian, so they don't all sound exactly American, but they're all stereotypes anyways in a, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, American kind of stereotypes over-the-top. Like We have the tough guy from Detroit. We have like the super athletic uh guy and like we have the kind of um you know uh the person who's there for a social message the person who's there because they want to get their face out there all that kind of stuff and then somebody wants to kind of prove themselves and go out in a, in a high and then we have a weirdo um so like we have all these different contestants and like it's done in this over-the-top game show like style and very japanese like uh the, there's a dj and dancing girls and stuff like that so it's very running man too on top of that but uh the idea of you know competing in a game of death for money and i know a lot of people have been watching squid game lately and i saw the first episode and enjoyed it and i was like oh it's very asian very you know been done before but it, it seems very good you know and and this is one of these deals a game of death movie and they have to compete with the slashers now the camera work is really fun especially for a low budget movie like there seems to be good transitions and like i think they're cutting but i sometimes the lights will flash where they hide a cut but they like go to like a scene and when they're introducing the slashers and they all come out and everything like that and the slashers are big personalities too we have um the preacher man who's you know the kind of reli religious zealot which <laughs> he has some of the best lines there's this one line that he delivers it's priceless where he says something along the lines of um and uh, you, before you die, you'll come in my arms in peace, and you'll leave in pieces. And I was just like, 
like they're all really like kind of one-liner serial killer kind of deals we have like chainsaw charlie who's kind of your your texas chainsaw but more a vocal kind of guy deal then we have like the creepy doctor who's like the perverted one so like all three of them are really larger than life and they kind of just these six contestants have to survive bickering each other and they kind of all tell their story while there's a cameraman following them there's all these elaborate rules and over time they get picked off and fight the slashers and everything like that for a chance to win millions of dollars there's some twists and turns there are some acting that is iffy i will say i don't want to point anybody out but some of it's very convincing and all in all the movie's just a lot of fun for me i've always had a great time with it um the gore effects are really cool too i mean they are low budget but like they'll do is like scenes where somebody's getting chopped up and it's the real person and they'll cut to somebody screaming they'll cut they'll zoom back and then it's like the prosthetic and they're using the chainsaw to cut them in half it's just very fun do-it-yourself clever filmmaking and it reminds me of like a lot of the stuff when i was on set like of what people would do or stuff um and uh, but done and on a bigger level than you know a lot of the stuff I was on but um it just kind of brings a smile to my face seeing the uh you know all the like like smart stuff and cheap like covering up cheap stuff in the in the effects um but yeah it's just I'm a I'm a sucker for game of death movies too and uh, yeah, I do enjoy most of the characters, and there's some twisted stuff in here. Um, being my gross, perverse sense of humor that I have, um, the doctor keeps like ripping off one of the girls' shirts, you know, because they want the ratings to go up. And he does it twice, and then the third time when he reveals himself and that girl standing there with the new shirt, um, he's like, "Remove your shirt immediately!" And I just always laugh every time I see it. So, anyways, slashers from 2001. I don't expect like um, a super big budget movie or anything like that. Um, it is very low budget. Um, you can tell in the aesthetic, but the aesthetic matches because it is like a, a game show and everything like that. So anyways, Slashers, really enjoy it. Uh, check it out. Okay, uh, this next one here is by William Lustig, uh, the guy who runs Blue Underground, but more importantly, the director of Maniac Cop. Yeah, William Lustig also directed Maniac Cop, uh, Maniac, Maniac Cop 2, Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence, Vigilante, Hit List, Uncle Sam... Uh, relentless he's done a lot of movies he's a very good director um kind of exploitation horror director uh, a lot of his stuff takes place in new york city and lustig is one of the kings of capturing that new york city in the um the 80s kind of style um i pretty much enjoyed every one of his movies i've seen he's never let me down even uncle sam i know a lot of people hate on uncle sam but i've always had fun with it. it's been years but i mean it is the 90s as you can expect that kind of stuff in the 90s and i always had fun it was very fun um so maniac cop uh, yeah, the first of the trilogy, and this one is a little bit more grounded than the other movies would become. It has Robert Dazar as, you know, the titular character as Maniac Cop. Um, if you've ever seen Robert Dazar, he is uh, unforgettable. His appearance, he's got really big jaw structure, kind of uh, cheekbones and everything like that. He's a big muscular guy. He's popped up in some other things. You've seen him um, in Tango and Cash and Cherry 2000 and stuff like that. Working actor, I think he's passed away since, and he, he seemed like a genuinely nice guy, so R.I.P. Robert Tazar. Then we have uh, Bruce Campbell in here, which is great to see Bruce Campbell work with William Lustig. And I feel like uh, they, they would kind of carry on that tradition in all three of the Maniac Cop movies. I know I'm spoiling a little bit because I'm going to talk about those two. Because in part one, we see, like, I think we see a glimpse of Sam Raimi as kind of a newscaster. And Bruce Campbell's in one. And then part two, we have Bruce Campbell. And spoiler, he's, he survived in the first one. And then part three, we have Ted Raimi making an appearance. So it's kind of like, it's very nice to see that kind of Campbell Raimi kind of thing in the William Lustig deal. I always like when these kind of directors work together and all that kind of stuff. So uh, also we have Tom Atkins, who is a, a very uh, infamous kind of character actor and stuff like Night of the Creeps and Creep Show, The Fog, Halloween 3. Just a wonderful actor. Always enjoyed Tom Atkins' work. Uh, and then we have people like Richard Roundtree and... Um, 
geez, uh, uh, William Smith. How could I forget William Smith? And he's got a really iconic role in here because William Smith usually see, you know, the set of hair, the dark hair and the big, thick mustache. Very muscular, kind of intimidating guy from like Red Dawn. And which one is he in? The Clint Eastwood one. Any which way loser, every which way you can. He's in one of those. He has an infamous uh, fight scene with Clint Eastwood, bare knuckle fight scene, which is awesome. But, um, He's shaved bald in this one, and he's just, he's got his voice, though. You never, a very, very memorable voice on William Smith. Also recently passed away, RIP. So essentially, what we have here is there's a series of killings going on, um, and uh, the people are saying it's a cop, a big, strong cop who's doing it, and he's killing innocents. So uh, Tom Atkins is the only one that wants to give this case any time of day. He really genuinely believes that it could be a cop. And so he starts to investigate, and they kind of uncover um, this kind of whole case. Well, um, Bruce Campbell is pinned for the murder because his ex-wife is a cop, and she's mur- she's not a cop, she's murdered and stuff like that. And they pin Bruce Campbell, and Tom Ankins is like one of the only ones that doesn't believe he did it, along with Bruce Campbell's girlfriend. So they start to kind of look and investigate, and they uncover that there was this super cop um, named Matt Cordell who kind of was set up, and they believe that the maniac cop is Matt Cordell. So this is the only one that has this kind of this mystery intrigue element to it, and uh, I don't want to say film noir because, um, but it has a good action set pieces that would continue to get more insane in the sequel but uh yeah maniac cop is is a really solid good movie with a, a fairly high kill count and a lot of people die you don't really expect to be killed so you don't expect to see the people who are killed actually killed and like big stars are killed and all that kind of stuff and there's a part with the uh you know the saint patrick's day parade which i love so i guess this is a holiday horror film anyways the ending has a good climax with the stunt uh where they go into the water and this van which is insane uh as far as the special features are concerned we have an interview with uh robert Dazar, and i love seeing that because robert Dazar, he he's a very funny guy you know if you see these interviews sometimes people are boring or professional or they seem nice but robert Dazar comes across very very jovial and uh, and a nice guy and he's talking about how the stuff he was in and then he's like well no i got two new hips so guys remember that out i can do stuff because he mentions doing his own studs a lot of times um, but then there's this uh, brilliant moment where my favorite thing is to hear actors or directors or filmmakers talk about other actors and directors and filmmakers or movies in general because other movies they're not involved with to show their love for movies because i have a certain respect for actors and directors that love movies the ones that don't, I'm always kind of baffled why they're doing this. And I think it's probably just mostly money. But uh, there's this genuine love in Robert Dazar where he's talking about the character of Matt Cordell. And he delivers this line where he's like, it's um, he's talking about Tombstone, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. And every time somebody brings up Tombstone, they always quote, uh, I'm your Huckleberry or, you know, Daisy. Which is, yeah, they're great lines, but we've heard them a million times. And uh, he, he compares himself to uh, the character of Matt Cordell to Doc Holliday's line in that movie when he's talking about Wyatt Earp taking out the Cowboys. He's like, it's not revenge, it's the reckoning. And I just hearing another, <laughs> hearing a, a Robert Desire say that, I was like, yeah, this guy loves movies, man. I can tell. Only uh, a, a fan of films or, or something would have that kind of attitude and, and to change their voice and do the quotes and everything like that. I, I quite enjoyed that. Um, yeah, he just seemed like a genuinely nice guy. And um, I wish they would have made a Maniac Cop 4, or at least got him, made the movie a remake where he could kind of cameo in, because I know they were going to do the Nicholas Winding Refn remake, and I kind of I kind of embrace a remake of Maniac Cop because it, I enjoy the whole series. I'm interested if Lustig is involved as producer and Refn is going to do it, but I never know if that's going to happen or not. But uh, it looked really good from Synapse Films, but you can expect that it sounded really solid. No subtitles, unfortunately, but there's like a surround sound 6.1 mix and a 5.1 and a 2.1, so you got three different audio choices. Anyways, Maniac Cop is a very good movie, very entertaining flick. Check it out if you haven't. 
Okay, this next one here is the 4K release of Maniac Cop 2, which I've covered this on Blu-ray before, but rewatching it um, on 4K was kind of a uh, was amazing, you know. Uh, so this continues where the first one left off, and uh, the killings start back up, and Maniac Cop seems a little bit more dead than he did before. Um, right off the bat, Maniac Cop kind of strikes the people who, uh, you know, beat him in the last movie. So, spoiler alert, which um, there's kind of a crazy amount of people who get killed in the first one you don't expect, and this one kind of follows suit. Where um, And Maniac Cop is absolutely brutal in this movie, just picking people up and snapping their necks. Um, Robert Davi kind of fills in for the lead here, and Robert Davi is in stuff like Goonies. I believe he's in Le Lethal Weapon, he definitely is in, and Die Hard. I think he's in both of those, but... Um, is he in Die I want to say he is in Lethal Weapon. I can't 100% remember for sure, but he he's absolutely brilliant in Die Hard. Um, I always bring it up every time. He's got the Johnson. I'm special. I'm a special agent Johnson, and I'm Agent Johnson. No relation. Uh, it's always cracked me up. Just a stupid joke. Um, but Robert Davi is really great in this. Is kind of like a grizzled detective and everything. Uh, of course, he doesn't believe that the maniac cop is out there killing people, but as the bodies pile up and he starts to get closer to the case, he realizes that there is a maniac cop, and it's up to him and a police psychiatrist to kind of stop the maniac cop. This movie is, uh, carries over some of the characters, like I said from the first one, not just Bruce Campbell, but uh, uh, Lori, uh, was it Lawton, who plays the, the female cop in the first one, and also brings back just some small characters that make small appearances. Um, a Larry Cohen regular. I should mention Larry Cohen wrote the first and second Maniac Cop and part of the third one, question mark, kind of strange. And his writing is really great. And the idea of the Maniac Cop is also very interesting, to be honest. And uh, it's just kind of a cool idea. You know, a cop who possibly went too far um, but went after the wrong baddies, wanted to take down city council and got kind of made an example of, sent to prison and, and attacked and came back as the Maniac Cop. I, I like that idea. It's a cool idea. Um, so yeah, this one is one of the craziest action horror films ever made. There is an infamous stunt uh, with a, a whole crazy car chase with uh, going down the road that's just uh, where this woman is handcuffed. That's just a police that guy's just handcuffed to the fucking wheel. Um, it's just a lot of intense nut stuff going on. There is a shootout in this film that uh, makes the Terminator police station shootout look like a, you know, kitty play. I mean, it is insane. The and it's done super well. Um, um, and people are flying all over the place. Michael Lerner is in this one, um, and he's top-notch. Michael Lerner is a great actor. Um, he's kind of like this, I, I don't remember exactly, what is it, like, not the mayor, but kind of a chief of some sort. Uh, I can't remember these kind of people, but he's also responsible for what happened to Matt Cordell. And there's also this whole other storyline here of a, a killer who's out uh, kind of strangling pro uh, strippers. He's strangling strippers, and somehow they, uh, Maniac Cop and him kind of wind in together. And that was originally supposed to be, um, you know, Frank Zito from Maniac, but Joe Spinell passed away. So we're going to have the Maniac Maniac Cop crossover, but Leo Rossi fills the role as this kind of crazy, uh, you know, serial killer. But he's tremendous in the role. He's, he's got a lot of energy, and he's just uh, super crazy and entertaining. And he just looks like a hairy thumb because his hair is so big and he's got the big beard. Um, Clarence Williams III also has an amazing performance in this one. As a death row inmate, and uh, it, it ties together. There's lots of cool stuff going on where Maniac Cop's got to get back to Sing Sing, where he was originally attacked, and everything like that. Um, yeah, it looks fantastic. Um, I I would say that Blue Underground is probably 
the best in the 4K game so far, as far as their prints are concerned. Like, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in Mania Cop 3. I was just really impressed how this looked and sounded. It's just awesome. And the it, it's a perfect movie to watch. Like, Mania Cop 2 is the movie that you can put in any time and just always be entertained. And it, it's the only kind of action set pieces that match the insanity that I would see in, like, the 90s Hong Kong movies. Just, like, the crazy stuff that goes on, the action. And that's all due to a lot of the, um, the stunt coordinator. He's fantastic. Shapiro. And this guy is just amazing. Like, the stuff they do is so, so dangerous. They would never, ever do this shit now. Ever. And that's what makes these movies so special on top of that, is the stunts and the, the, the crazy stuff that's going on. And I don't think anyone was hurt on these movies, which goes to show you that, you know, this guy was fucking good. Because it's, this stuff looks dangerous as hell. Um, yeah, it's just a, a weird movie. And it's more of a horror film in this one. There's definitely more of a supernatural aspect to it, even though the first one's got to be to a certain extent. But uh, that police shootout is amazing. Like, I don't think it's ever been matched. It's just a massacre, if you will. But uh, anyways, uh, there's some special features on the Maniac Cop uh, Blu-ray and 4K. They're carried over. Um, there's no new special features. Um, just the old stuff uh, was on the, the double-disc Blu-ray. But we have the audio commentary with Lustig and Raffin. And then we have uh, the making of Maniac Cop 2 and uh, Cine Family Q&A with director William Lustig, a deleted scene, isolated music track, all that kind of stuff here. But uh, yeah, just a, just a fantastic cast. Um, it does have Dolby Atmos too, which you got to give it up for fucking uh, Blue Underground putting that Dolby Atmos track on there because it does make a difference. A lot of the ones that have the 5.1 DTX and stuff like that, not as good as... Uh, um, Dolby Atmos to me. At least on my system, Dolby Atmos plays the best in the surround sound and the 4K TV and HD, all that kind of stuff. The Dolby Atmos just kills it in the sound department. So, yeah, check out Mania Cop 2. Loved it. And I, come on, everybody loves Mania Cop 2. If you don't, you're wrong. Okay, so now we're going to finish out this trilogy with Mania Cop 3. Badge of silence. Uh, yeah, it's the only one with the little name at the end. And this is infamous because uh, William Lustig always disowned this movie. If you watch the opening, and this is directed by Alan, Alan Smithy, that's never a good sign, okay? Um, there was weird communication problems with Larry Cohen on the writing and the producer, Jay Chataway, and William Lustig. Um, they kind of argued, and, and it was just all messed up, okay? But uh, there's a commentary track on here saying that right off the bat with Jay, a brand new one with Jay Chataway and William Lustig. And uh, obviously they've mended everything, and it's just a great commentary, them going back and forth and everything. And you could tell um, these these are both reasonable human beings, and they were like, yeah, well, we just had a bad time, and it was just messed up. And Jay has since directed his own work, so he knew what Lustig was up against and all that kind of stuff. And just watching it, I was like, you know what, that commentary, like, it... it I like this movie, so it didn't really smooth anything about the film or answer any questions about it. I mean, the the problem with Maniac Cop 3 is it's not as good as Maniac Cop 2. I mean, that's such a high high. Then when people put in 3, they're like, this isn't as good. And the script, it, it's clunky to a certain extent, but we're in part 3s here. And we're already dealing with this supernatural physical cop and everything like that. And 2 ended on a good note to, to seal the deal on him. It, so when part three opens, you're like, why is this happening? And we have this voodoo subplot and everything like that, which is absolutely bonkers, but very much 90s. But I have no problem with it. I enjoy it. I mean, it's cheesy. You just kind of have to embrace the cheesy subplot and the B-movie kind of elements. And I did right off the bat. Um, I love all three of the Maniac Cop movies because they're an hour and 20-some minutes. They're short. They're sweet. They're action-packed. They get to the fucking point. Um, they're riddled with character actors that I adore. This one is no different. Um, we have, of course, Robert Dazar returning. We have Robert Dobby returning, and then we have uh, a couple uh, fresh faces for the Maniac Cop series. Frank Pesh is in here as a different character, and I, I they mentioned this in the commentary too. But with I'm, I'm trailing off on a here a tangent, but Frank.
Frank Pesh, and his, there's another character with him who are these two kind of greasy reporters that drive around and try to like and catch all the gross violence. And I was like, hey, it's Nightcrawler in five minutes. And they said the same thing in the commentary. I was like, oh, it's nice to be validated by somebody more intelligent than you. But I know this is going to sound shitty. I'm not the hugest fan of Nightcrawler, and I feel like Maniac Cop 3 does everything Nightcrawler does in five minutes. I know I'm going to take so much shit for that, but it, it's kind of funny. It's like, hey, they told the same story in three and a half minutes. Cannibal Holocaust told the same story in that, in that too. It's just, I don't, I thought Nightcrawler looked fantastic, but it just didn't do much for me, you know? Uh, and as silly as Maniac Cop 3 is, they, they, I don't need you to hit me over the head with the message. I fucking got it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Maniac Cop 3, uh, besides Frank Pesci, plays this sleazy report. We also have Jackie Haley, uh, early Haley. I always say, I always mix up his three names things. He plays this kind of crazy junkie in the movie, and he has a great opening scene. Kind of reminiscent of the junkie scene in Maniac Cop 2, but just even more over the top. <laughs> and he, he played a lot of criminals at this time. He also was in frickin' Doll Man at the time in 91. It's around the same time and he played this crazy criminal and everything like that. He would go on to play Freddy Krueger in the remake. He was in Rorschach. He was in Bad News Bears beforehand. And I know he's famous for like a running movie or a biking movie. I can't remember exactly. But anyways... He's, he's great as a sleazebag in this movie. So, yeah, and Robert Forrester is in here, Paul Gleason. It's got a lot of familiar faces just popping up for a couple seconds to get to get wasted for the most part. So, essentially, what we have here is Maniac Cop. They, they called it the Bride of Frankenstein of the Maniac Cop movies, and it kind of follows that plot. You know, uh, Matt Cordell is tired of being this, this person who is kind of wrongfully accused of being a, a villain. You know, and he wants, you know, to bring justice his way, punish the cops, all that kind of stuff. He does that more in two, um, like helping the, the criminals and punishing the cops. So he, there's this, uh, this partner or this kind of like, um, Another cop, they call Maniac Kate in the newspaper because she's really kind of trigger happy and killed some people. Robert Davi is a friend of hers, kind of took her under his wing. And uh, during kind of a, um, a, a botched robbery by Jackie Early Haley, she gets shot. And But the video footage looks pretty bad because, you know, the, the news reporter people that were there, the Nightcrawler kind of people, filmed it in a way and released what they wanted to. So it makes her look bad. I don't know if people would like seeing that message nowadays in a movie. They'd be like, what? Cops shooting people is good. You know, they'd be like, oh, are they? weren't that bad in this movie you know how things go now uh times change guys times fucking change but uh it also is a b movie all right exploitation style b movie but anyways uh maniac cop matt cordell sees kind of a um a kindred spirit in maniac kate so he wants her she's in a coma from the injury and maniac cops trying to get her while the city is trying to pull the plug on her because they don't want this to get out you know this is a shit storm as it is uh yeah robert forster has this nice little small wonder role he plays in this one and they mentioned he has a whole role where he's talk, going through he's a doctor talking about all the patients and everything like that that's done well robert forster never disappoints uh paul gleason plays kind of a sleazebag guy from city hall and yeah there's just a bunch of fun stuff in here as well it's short it's e it's a little bit inept i think it's storytelling but i got what the hell was going on i mean as far as logical senses and reasoning and stuff like that um it also does have the kind of guy in shrunken heads who does the voodoo to bring the kids back for revenge from 1991 this time he's bringing maniac cop back why why not uh so <laughs> they mentioned that he didn't have, he couldn't memorize his lines at the time very well so he kind of just did whatever the hell he wanted They're like yeah but he's good at that so let's just i liked it so we, we left it in um and the commentary you have jay and william Mustang. did you direct this part i don't know i think i directed this you must have directed this going back and forth it's fun uh yeah this one looks fantastic as, as funny as good as maniac cop 2 is um it's well shot and everything and it looks great i think they they cleaned up maniac cop 3 even more like i just was watching it i was like 
can't believe, man. I can't believe this is Maniac Cop 3 in 4K. And I don't know if I ever watched this one. Maniac Cop 2 and 3 are movies that, as a kid, they were always on, like, HBO, and I caught glimpses of them. They were on premium television. We had the stations. And I remember seeing bits of Maniac Cop 2 and 3 and always at the video store. And I just don't know if I ever saw the whole movie as a kid. So, re-watching it here, I was, like, kind of filling in pieces and everything like that. So, yeah, I enjoyed the hell out of it. The ending is great, too. There's an amazing car chase in here that's very fun. Robert Davi's good in it, too. He gets to be more of an action hero in this. There's this really fun set piece where he jumps out behind a, under uh, a sheet. And uh, William Lustig's like, yeah, I got that from... Uh, he mentions getting it from like uh, the Hong Kong movies. I think it's either Hard Boy or The Killer by John Woo, um, which are great movies if you haven't seen them. And so, you know, Lustig is a cinephile. He takes his influences from all sorts of movies, all great world cinema, and... Uh, it shows, and I love it. So uh, this one is, I don't get the hate on it. I really don't. It's just super entertaining. It's goofy. It's not as good as two. It's really not, but what is? Um, so anyways, I enjoyed it. It sounded great. It looked great. Lots of explosions. Just awesome shit going on. Uh, entertaining. Um, so the special features in here, the new audio comment. <laughs> it says audio commentary with director Alan Smithy on the back. It's Lustig and Jay Chataway because they both kind of co-directed it. No one directed it. And then we have uh, a wrong arm of the law, the making of Maniac Cop 3 that has interviews with a bunch of people, including Robert Davi, William Lustig, Jay Chataway, um, Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen says this funny thing. He's like, is it my fault? I don't know. It could be. I hope not. Probably is. Or it could be. It's very funny. Um, he's like, but two out of three ain't bad when he's talking about the Maniac Cop movies. Uh, yeah. Anyways, a nice, great release from Blue Underground. Um, long live Matt Cordell. Man, this, when you think about horror series, usually the last few, like, I mean, they go on a long time, right? Where you get like five, six, seven, eight, and they're terrible or something like that. But um, I remember Romero's, uh, the original trilogy is like untouched, right? You couldn't beat the Romero Night, Dawn, a Day. And even Land in there, like, still the best. But then you still get Diary Survival, like, I can't vouch for that being the best anymore. But as far as Maniac Cop 1, 2, 3, not one bad movie among the three. So, not to me at least. It's got to be there, right? I know it's technically some people only consider a franchise after four movies, but we get that remake. Maniac Cop is a franchise, and I want—I I am definitely interested in that remake, especially if Reffin's producing and Lustig's involved. Yeah, for sure. But anyways, Maniac Cop 1, 2, and 3, all highly recommended. Very fun. Check them out. Uh, the last two being on 4K from Blue Underground. You got it. If you haven't picked them up before, they're definitely worth picking up. Uh, they're great stuff. Okay, this next one is from Dread Central Releasing, and uh, this is a text, counts as a 2021 watch. And this is The Mate. And uh, yeah, this is a Thai movie. And I had heard a little bit about it. Um, and so I start watching it. And it feels a lot like um, you're a very famous Korean horror film. And if I tell you the horror film, it will spoil everything. So I don't want to. It's a very good one. I've covered it on the channel. Um, so I'm watching and I'm enjoying it. And we have what this is this maid who gets hired to work at this kind of mansion uh, for these rich people. The husband and wife are a little odd. There's a young little girl who seems to be suffering from some sort of mental illness. They say she sees ghosts and all sorts of things like that. Uh, the maid starts to see the ghost as well. And it seems like she's not the first maid they've had that's seen this kind of stuff. So you would assume that this mansion is haunted. Um, we also register that this maid, it's jumping back and forth. She's very young. And there's kind of like some other maids there, some higher-ups that have different jobs and functions and a butler and stuff. They're kind of, you know, really closed lip about the situation and maybe cold and distant and everything like that. But soon enough, she starts to dig into what possibly happened to a previous mate. 
that she believes is the ghost. And uh, as it goes on and on, we start to think that there is some sort of murder mystery, like all go great ghost stories. You know, we have to figure out the ghost is trying to tell you what happened and all that kind of stuff. But there starts to be more reveals, and we start to see that, you know, some people may not be as mentally stable as we thought they once were. And then we're like, and about this is divided in the chapters, and by the last chapter. I was about to fall in love with this film, and I and, and by that last chapter, I actually did. There's a reveal in here that blew my mind, and it's very similar to that, again, that Korean ghost story, which is very unique. Um, and I thought, geez, oh geez, this is great stuff. And uh, it becomes an insane kind of blood sh like bloodshedded slasher kind of style movie, and I just loved it. But uh, there's this one character moment that I adored where somebody says something to somebody, are you a dancer, do you like to dance? And they say, no, I don't. But um, they kind of change a little bit at one point, and they kind of mock the person by doing this little dance. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it gets pretty dark, pretty crazy at the end, and it really won me over. Like I said, I can't spoil the movie. But the cinematography is great. It's a gorgeous-looking movie. It kept my attention the entire time, and it's damn near two hours. Sometimes, if you watch a, like a you know a movie that's two hours long and it's foreign, a lot of people will start to slip. This one just kept me intrigued with the the mystery of it and the gorgeous kind of cinematography and the location. Of course, is is very nice. But then by the end, the reveal, I was like, oh, we got a real winner here. We have a real 2021 contender for myself. I thought it was quite good, and I thought it was uh, excellent. So, anyways, the maid. There's no special features on here, which are kind of a bummer great performance from the lead great reveal very sad very intense very gory so good stuff the mate okay this next one here is also from dread central uh kind of epic pictures and this is a bad candy um this is a horror anthology halloween movie so i was like all right that sounds perfect for right now in october uh, i should mention that this is being recorded october 30th tomorrow is halloween it will be released a couple days after halloween so sorry about that guys but i think this is actually go out to the patreons on halloween so happy halloween so bad candy okay so I, I put this in, and uh, it has like the wraparound with Corey Taylor from Slipknot and Zach Galligan from Gremlins and Waxwork and Round Trip Around Heaven talking. You know, about, they're just kind of small town. They're kind of telling all these kind of spooky stories and everything like that. And we cut into the first story, and we have the most over-the-top yet wonderful Halloween atmosphere I've ever seen. We have tons of pumpkins, which I know some people hate, Brandon Orlick. Um, and we have this wonderful decorations and this small town feel with leaves and everything. And I was like, man, they really went all out to set this small Halloween feel up. And I think it's working very well uh bravo bravo um and then we cut to the story of these kids trick-or-treating we have a, a drunken stepfather who is a horrible piece of crap and um this young girl who seems to have some sort of magical powers also in the background there is uh what appears to be some sort of kind of like connector character like a sam from trick-or-treat that's this evil clown and i feel like he has a history i'm not 100 percent sure uh if, it, if there was like a short with him in it or something like that but uh he kind of has the the earnest scared stupid powers where he grabs bad kids and turns them into statues which is kind of a nice touch so right away i'm like i am in love with this um the girl's magical powers kind of involve drawings that come to life uh, like kind of like a tales in the crypt storyline or something like that involving little creatures and everything that and, and this one i thought was a wonderful short story I thought was perfect and when it was over i was like oh man i thought this was the movie i completely forgot that i was watching a short and i wanted the entire i was like how are they going to keep this on for 100 minutes and then it ends it's like okay so we kind of get into some more and more shorts and then like they're going on and on and on there's so many of them and they kind of intertwine all that trick-or-treat where a lot of characters will jump over into other stories but by the end of it i i felt myself so disconnected from the film 
and I think it was the the amount of shorts that were in there and the way it was shot was wonderful the atmosphere was good it's just that the stories weren't necessarily great except the first one then we also have like kind of stories that, like and this is the bad thing about an anthology especially when you don't have the the, the hard separated storylines like in trigger treat you remember all of them because they're all pretty good to great and and creep show you remember all of them because they have the hard separate they're all different but they're all great um Sometimes with these ones, you just have so many that are, you know, this one's a few minutes, this one's 10 minutes, and you start to get it mixed up to the point where you're like, I can't remember every single story in here because a lot of them blur together too, which is a positive in a lot of the script style, but at the same time, it, it, I can't recall everything because there wasn't that much more memorable things in here. One of the stories involves kind of an evil old man who's passing out candy, you know... Night of the Demons kind of style where he's a piece of shit giving kids candy and he gets just comeuppance of course that one was I thought decent and I thought the guy who played the creepy old man passing out gross candy was very funny Um, he worked really well and we also have this kind of big elaborate story about these kind of, I believe they're ex-military and somebody was kind of, uh, one of their friends was had gone through some terrible things and they planned this elaborate game, which has this nuts reveal with great special effects. Um, and then we have this uh, big ghost story kind of deal with uh, at the end with like filming and everything. And this one is kind of the most clunky deal and everything like that. But again, I must admit that by the time we got here, I had lost a lot of the interest because there was just so much going on and the stories were not as intriguing is that first story they start themselves with such a high point and they gradually it's kind of like this and it's just like going downhill after that first story and I don't want to be too negative about it of course kind of they tie in the disc jockeys and everything like that um, with uh, Zach Gilligan and everything and Corey Taylor but the movie did have a bunch of features on here including a director's commentary had behind the scenes videos a filmmaker interview and uncured sacrifice music video Kira scene storyboard Um, the interview was actually kind of done on Zoom or Skype and they had two guys sitting down to talk with the two filmmakers and these guys love movies you can tell they're very enthusiastic and they did a great job as far as like visually the film looks and I just think there's too many stories in here and I think that they blurred together a little bit you know Um, a couple of the stories are fantastic that first one like I said is the one that really really brings it home with the the little creature and the fairy and it's just done really well and the other ones just kind of just don't work they don't hit as hard Um, and I just kind of wanted to see an hour and a half of the first one. And I know people are like, well, that's your fault. Um, and it is. So um, give this one a chance. I mean, you could do worse as far as that Halloween atmosphere is concerned. Um, it's there. It's it's really there. Pop it in and just even if uh, watch that first story. And if you're lugging what you see, I'd say continue it. You, you, might, you might stay more focused than I did. Um, but it's at the very least, and I don't mean this as an insult, it's good background, background stuff to have on on Halloween. So if you want something to pop in and pass out candy, it's a great film for that. Um, because it looks great and it has cool stuff and spooky stuff going on the whole time. Um, and that first segment is very much something that is in my mentality. It's like, it feels like a kid's movie, but it's also too harsh to be a kid's movie. I just, I'm all about that kind of stuff sometimes, but that is a bad candy. Check it out if it sounds like it's up your alley. Okay, this next one is the debut, American debut of 88 Films. This is the Gestapo's Last Orgy. Um, and this is a video nasty, infamous video nasty. Um, 88 Films is a UK-based company. They put out a lot of great stuff over in the UK, and I guess they're getting it into the US game, uh, similar to how Arrow did. And I know Umbrella tried with um, the one uh, Mel Gibson kind of war film, Sam Neill. So 88 Films is, is coming hard with their first movie. I should that should use the better choice of words. But Gestapo's Last Orgy, and this is uh, you know one of those infamous Nazi exploitation movies after kind of Ilsa and um, what was that, Silent Kitty 
and uh, what was the the classy one? Was it that uh, Criterion actually released Black Angel? Was it? So maybe it wasn't, but maybe it's the Tinto Brass one. But there was like a cl- Night Porter was the classy one, and then we had all the big Nazi exploitation kind of movies with Elsa and going on and all that kind of stuff. Maybe in my timeline screwed up here. But this is one of the ones that came out in 76, 77. There's tons of them. Sergio Garoni put out some, and there's just um, the problem with the the Nazi exploitation movies is Italy and like France and all these countries were pushing these suckers out. So it's like SS experiment camp. As, um, you know, there's like 30 that start with SS girls or or Beast in Heat. I know Severn put out a slew of them as well. So it starts to get crazy and mixed up here. Where you're like, I don't, uh, which ones have I seen, which ones I haven't. They all have a thousand alternative names. But so I put in uh, Gestapo's Last Orgy and I realized, no, I had not seen this one. The first thing I noticed right off the bat from the 88 films release was... This is the most gorgeous-looking Nazi exploitation movie I've ever seen, and it was their print. They had remastered this sucker so well, I was just kind of taken back. I was like, this looks so good, it's it's boggling my mind right now. And also, the score. The score is absolutely one of those most ridiculous kind of things that just plays over the entire movie, and it's got like this soft kind of this uh, like music that just never nonstop plays. It's it's very memorable, but also gets on your nerves because you hear it a million times. So we have this kind of structure of the story. We have uh, kind of like the modern day. We have like the news report kind of going through and telling all these stories about the SS and the Nazis torturing Jews and all that. And we have like this big court case and everything like that. And these Nazis are on trial, and we kind of. Flashback. This this one woman kind of steps in and does this court case, and we realize she's got this Nazi off the hook. And we kind of flashback to her being in the camp and starting off at the very beginning, and all these women being molested and raped by the Nazis. And within the first ten minutes of this movie, I realized what I was in. Um, it, it's 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 it plays really softcore, but it's very explicit. And I was like. Oh wow, like it has this tone of the most mean-spirited shit I've seen in any Nazi exploitation movie, but it happens so much and so fast that I got, became numb to it immediately. I was like, oh, it's almost become to the point where I'm just rolling my eyes because like within 10 minutes somebody's eating shit. And I was just like, after that, like what are we going to do? But it doesn't change the fact that it is absolutely very, very... Uh, Video nasty worthy. Like if this is one of the ones I like, put it on the list. Blogs on the list. Uh, put it up there with Cannibal Holocaust. It's just too, you know. It doesn't seem like it has very much of a um, a social kind of uh, you know uh, like saving grace or something. Like Cannibal Holocaust has that message or whatever. You know what I mean? But uh, so so watching it, I I kind of the the explicitness kind of warrants welcome, and it just kept getting more gratuitous and more gratuitous. And the main Nazi in here is such a son of a bitch. I literally wanted to kill every Nazi in this movie terribly. Um, there's tons of nudity. Um, all the women are naked. All the women are raped. All the women are are beaten and degradation. All that kind of stuff. There is some male nudity too. All that. Um, it just goes on and on, and it keeps jumping back into two different timelines, and we know exactly where it's headed, right? Um, until it finally does head there. Um, the music, it does play like that beautiful music on these horrible images. It kind of has that dichotomy, I guess, between the, the wonderful score and the horrible imagery as well. But uh, there's also uh, the, the reveal. The, and like right when you think you've seen everything horrible that could possibly happen, it does one more kind of shock. And I was just like, ah, we're still doing this. Um, which is what its intent is, right? It's an exploitation movie. But uh, the very ending, there's actually two endings on the disc, and I preferred the alternative ending. I thought the alternative ending just hit harder. It, it felt a little bit better. Um, I, I, I don't mean felt better, but it just felt more in place, if that makes any sense. Um, the ending they leave on the disc is actually the darker ending, uh, I would say. 
Um, as far as the special features are concerned, there is a slew of them. We have uh, two audio commentaries, which is insane. We have one with uh, film experts Trey Haworth and Nathaniel Thompson, which they always do a good job. And then another audio commentary with critic author Sam Deegan, who also does a fantastic job. Her commentary made me laugh out loud immediately because the movie quotes Nietzsche. And I was just like, we're, we're doing Frederick Nietzsche in the very beginning. And she's like, misspelled, of course. And I was just like... Um, but then we also have the alternative Italian ending, Remember in Alberto Badan Bembo, an interview with uh, uh, Pierre Pablo de, de Secas, and One Thing on His Mind, an interview with Luigi Cazzi, and then we have Reversible Sleeve with the original Italian poster. Uh, I know 88 Films has got a bunch of other stuff lined up, a lot of uh, Shaw Brothers stuff, so I look forward to checking all that out. But anyways, Gestapo's Last Orgy, if you're a video nasties completist, a Nazi exploitation completist, or someone who's into the kind of crazier side of Italian cinema, check it out. Otherwise, you probably want to steer clear okay so the patreon pick is from chris rivers and he said pick an arrow release that you haven't had time to check out so this one has been sitting on the shelf for a couple weeks and i was like you know what i really want to dive into this i have not watched this in a very long time and the last time i watched it was the director's cut this is ridley scott's legend uh, starring of course um Frickin' Tim Curry, Tom Cruise, uh, Billy Barty. I can't think of the female lead in this. Um, uh, I know I'll know her name right when I see it. It is Amia Sarah. Um, yeah, and uh, some other people as well. Uh, mostly uh, the one that comes to mind, like to me right away, is Tim Curry. Jeez, uh, so Legend. A uh, very infamous movie from 1985, directed by one of the best directors, like I said, Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott obviously did Blade Runner and Alien and Gladiator. This guy is one of the, you know, the legends of, of filmmaking. Uh, this is an early role for Tom Cruise, 1985, um, but everybody's seen Legend. Um, so I was familiar, like I said, with the, the director's cut with the Goldsmith score. So I wanted to check out the theatrical cut and see how that kind of differed with the Tangerine Dream score. Tangerine Dream is a very unique band. Um, they do lots of strange scores on movies. They did The Keep and, and it's just, uh, I, I don't know how to put their scores. I would say it's an acquired taste. Sometimes it works really well. Other times you're just kind of baffled by it. So putting in Legend, um, the theatrical cut is like an hour and a half and the director's is like an hour and 53. So there's some major differences. Mostly, I guess the scenes are elongated for my understanding and everything like that so um anyways I, I don't know really how much i can talk about legend really um with saying things that other people haven't said um it's one of the most gorgeous looking fantasy movies ever made um i really don't have uh anything negative to say about it i know that it didn't do as well as, as people thought it should or it kind of flopped and kind of some people said it kind of ended kind of the fantasy kind of films of the time and i know that we had a lot of kind of fantasy like sword and sandal stuff going on we had the conan movies and we had like dune i guess would be fantasy and we just kind of had some hard like kind of failures and everything like that but dune was 86 but legend being that kind of feeling like that kind of uh, sword and sandal deal. Uh, so the plot is Tim Curry is the darkness. Just a wonderful, amazing performance. He's like this devil-like creature. There's this booming, beautiful voice. And he's definitely this evil entity. And he uh, wants to take, he lives in the darkness. He wants to take out the unicorns, which are the things that bring the light. They are magical creatures. And with them every day, well, you know, light comes throughout these two uh, magical creatures. Um, Tom Cruise is kind of like this simple, innocent boy who can witness the unicorns and everything like that but no human should ever touch unicorns or even see them really so uh him and he and mia sarah uh, is kind of in uh, love with tom cruise they have a relationship and one day he decides to show her the unicorns to his mistake uh while the baddies are watching and tim curry had sent up these like goblins and everything there's like these three goblins that are wonderful there's um uh i can't think of the main one uh what is his name blix and then we have uh pox or with the heavy one and then we have blunder like the three of them uh one is like this this quintessential great goblin with this and 
amazing makeup. And then we have Pox, who's kind of like the pig guy, who's very funny, and he has one of my favorite lines in the movie when Blix has kind of the unicorn's horn, uh, spoiler, and he mentions something along the lines of um, being able to use the magic, uh, doing this poem and making the fire rise up. And uh, Pox is like, um, I believe it's Pox, he's like, why not turn the whole world into slop? Giant slop, it would be beautiful. And he's just like trying to convince him to turn everything into slop so he can eat it because he's a pig man. And I was like, that is so funny. Um, but anyways, uh, what happens is uh, the darkness ends up uh, having the goons kill one of the unicorns and they get its horn, but of course they, they still need to take out the other unicorn to have darkness kind of overtake the world. Um, the darkness has an infatuation with Mia Sarah, of course, and they kidnap her and it's up to kind of, you know, Tom Cruise and company as friends. Um, Brown Tom and Screwball, who are these two kind of short dwarfs, I would say. One played by Billy Barty, whose voice is, is so recognizable right when you hear it. He would go on to play Gwildor, Master of the Universe, kind of playing a similar character. I, I love Gwildor. I know people hate him because he's not Orko, but hey, don't blame Gwildor for Orko not being in the movie. Uh, so anyways, uh, they, they kind of go on this kind of fantastical mission to try to stop darkness and save the girl and all sorts of stuff there's lots of cool stuff on in this movie of course uh visually it's an amazing movie production designs are unmatched uh the black dress that kind of you know lures mia sarah in is, is fucking wonderful love the dance sequence it's very memorable uh tom i i can't uh, overstate um how wonderful tim curry is in this his design his voices his dialogue his presence is just perfect um yes it does have some unanswered questions that i people people would probably be like, how's this work? How's that work? But this fantasy element, it's kind of like, you got to let it go. And, and the same year was also, um, what's the uh, Black Cauldron, which I feel has some similarities to it as well. 85 was just such an amazing year for films in general, if you ask me, especially the horror films, but still, even this kind of stuff, we have Back to the Future, we have Legend, we have uh, Black Cauldron, just an interesting year for sure. But uh, yeah, there's just so much cool stuff going on, and I, I would definitely be terrible not to mention The Bog Witch, played by Robert Bricardo, which, uh, juicy boy, uh, which just makes me laugh out loud, too. Rewatching this was a treat, to be honest, and, and there's so many special features in here. If I ha had got to watch everything, I would be here all day. It looked fantastic. It's a beautiful-looking movie. I was kind of hoping they would put it out on 4K, um, but we'll never know. Maybe um, Universal will put it out on 4K down the line. But uh, yeah, so there's just so much stuff going on besides the book that have contributions from like Cat Ellinger and all sorts of people on here. But uh, the theatrical version has a bunch of features on here. New audio commentary with Paul M. Simon, who basically author of Ridley Scott, The Making of His Movies. Reconstructed isolated score track by Tangerine Dream from 2002. Isolated music and effects uh, track. Remembering a Legend, a brand new feature at interviewing Grip David Codwalder, production and supervisor Hugh Harlow, costume designer Charles Node, co-star uh, Annabelle Layton, camera operator Peter McDonald, set decorator Ann Marlowe, and draftsman John Ralph. And this is a very interesting special feature because these are people that are, not, are, are often not interviewed about this kind of stuff, and they talk about doing the set working with Ridley Scott, working with Tom Cruise. Interesting stuff for sure. The Music of Legend, a two-part featurette focusing on the scores for both versions, which film with film experts, uh, music experts Jeff Bond and Daniel Swiger, and Austin Garrett and uh, Brownwyn Griffin from the band Electric Youth. That is also very interesting. They talk about the differences and stuff like that. The Creatures of Legend, a two-part featurette looking at Rob Bottin's makeup effects with illustrator Martin A. Klein and makeup effects artist Nick Dunman. Incarnations of a Legend comparison featurette written and narrated by 
uh, critic Travis Crawford discussing the difference between various versions of the film. He breaks down the theatrical, the directors, and the international version. The directors, uh, Ridley Scott, a 2003 documentary in which the director discusses his career up to the point, including Legend. Opening narration from editor for TV version music video for Love is Strong Enough by Barry Ferry. Brian Ferry, not Barry Ferry, jeez. Uh, and then we have this too. We have a commentary by Ridley Scott. Um, an archival documentary from Tazdu featuring interviews with Ridley Scott, William Horsburt, Mia Saro, Tim Curry, Rob Bottin, and several other cast and crew members. Original promotional material, uh, featurette, two deleted scenes, the alternate four goblins opening, and the fairy dance storyboard galleries, two drafts of William Holtzberg's screenplay, alternate footage from the overseas releases, plus textless footage, three theatrical trailers, four TV spots, and image galleries. Not to mention these postcards in here, this freaking book. It's just an amazing release uh, for a really entertaining movie. And like... I was kind of shocked because I wasn't obviously not born in 85, but when I went to like see the review, like see stuff in there, the history of it, they were like, like, oh, this movie was, didn't do as well as I thought. I was like, huh? Like, I just, I just assumed it was a very popular movie, but I, I know everybody that I know enjoys it and it's great. Um, and it's just a, um, just a beautiful movie to look at, especially when the unicorn dies and it just like snows and just lots of great stuff going on. Uh, uh, and remember, turn the whole world to slop. <laughs> I <laughs> uh, just it's a great movie and a great release from Arrow so check it out okay everybody uh, make sure you pull out your pervert card for this next one it also happens to be a 1994 movie two birds one stone so yeah um, I told you I was going to continue with the rape man movies and that's exactly what I did this is rape man 2 yeah so uh rape man 2 these I'm starting to catch a pattern that these movies just don't have all that much to talk about except the general plot. So this one opens up fairly quick within like the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes. There's like two rapes by Rape Man. One of which is like this kind of, you know, over stylized where he's chasing this girl in the sewer. And then, of course, you know, a rape ensues with uh, the scattery kind of camera that we kind of deal with. Um, but then we kind of realize that... Um, uh, right man is hired to kind of rape this nurse because she kind of ended up leaving somebody on their, their fiance, like after the wedding and, and didn't pay like during, like on the altar and all that kind of stuff. So I guess that's rape justified. Um, the tagline of these movies is so terrible. It says, uh, writing the wrongs through penetration. You're just like, Oh man. So, uh, yeah, right man is back. Same actor. Um, uncle is back. Same actor. And, uh, so basically after they kind of start to, after that rape, they kind of look into things. And of course they're always being like screwed over by somebody and, <clears throat> And, and like uncovering like a corruption case like it's so funny like every time so far like they'll be like well they'll they'll commit this crime and whatever in the name of justice and then they'll uncover that there's these crooked people like uh, at the first one was politicians now we're gonna find a bunch of crooked doctors uh, working with the the uh hong kong mob or something like that so essentially what happens is um rape man and uncle uh basically his boss or his, his mentor or whatever the hell you want to call it um they uh have befriended this young uh this young little girl who calls uh, uncle her real like grandpa you know that kind of deal and and uh so what happens is one day she's kind of out playing and she runs to the road and she's hit by a car it's, it's very depressing um she ends up going to the hospital and after a while they realize we think she's going to be okay no need to worry about anything but uh then one night she actually she passes away and it, it's just done not in a very nonchalant way uh right man uh, uncle uh, the uncle the gets her law gets his lawyer to try to help him but it doesn't really help they start to investigate and they realize that the doctors are working with the mob they use the reporter friend from the first film and they uncover a secret of basically organ kind of like harvesting operation and everything like that and it's up to rape man and company to uh you know rape people through justice and find out uh all the kind of evils and everything like that so yeah 
it, it basically uh, kind of leads up, and then at the very end, there's a couple more rapes of the baddies, and that's the entire movie. Uh, yeah, so it also is always cutting back to these goofy subplots of, you know, Rape Man being that teacher by day, kind of like making the kids run and like these girls kind of playing pranks on uh, on him and everything I and mean, he's like a baffling moron kind of deal and everything like that um so yeah i really don't have that much to say about this except that they tried to the mix it up where the locations of the rapes happen to kind of i guess make it different one of which happens in this elevator shaft that's really dark and weird and then i said of course the one in the sewer system but anyways i really don't have that much to say about the this inappropriate movie but it is what it is and i'm going to continue this series for better or worse um, uh, yeah. Okay, so the next one from 1994 is Leprechaun 2. Everybody's favorite Leprechaun, right? I have not watched the Leprechaun movies in a very long time, but uh, I remember watching at least the first five when they came out, and then I watched Returns. So uh, Leprechaun 1 I always liked as a kid. You know, it was the perfect timing for that kind of movie, like 92 or something like that, 93. So Leprechaun 2 uh, is a sequel to that, although it doesn't really have any connective tissue, of course. Um, and JP always claims it's a different Leprechaun through movies, and I'm like, oh, I don't think they even gave a shit about that or paid attention. It was just the writer got whatever the hell they got. The direct they made the Leprechaun whatever they wanted to do. This one's directed by Rodman Flender, who did stuff like The Unborn and Idle Hands and some other movies. Worked at Corman Studio for a while, uh, so he's he's a decent director. You know, he's got some credentials on him. So uh, Leprechaun Two, I imagine, was shot very quickly. Um, so the leads in the movie are fairly terrible, fairly forgettable. Um, and JP, who loves the Leprechaun movies from 22 Shots, claimed that this has the worst acting in the entire franchise. I wouldn't argue with that, but I have not seen the other ones in a very long time. It does have a small role from Clint Howard, which is very funny, and he's pretty solid at it, but he doesn't get much to do. Um, there's a character called Morty, which is fun. He plays uh, the main character's uncle, and he's this kind of a, um, you know, this kind of get-rich-fast scheme kind of guy. He's always greedy about money and everything, and of course he's going to have a face-off with a Leprechaun. Um, so this one takes place a lot during St. Patrick's Day, um, where Tony Cox has an appearance in the movie, of course, because we have a lot of people playing like leprechauns. There's a lot of small people in and stuff, and sometimes they interact with, you know, Warwick Davis, who's always good in these movies. He does his best. Um, but yeah, Tony Cox, I don't know what the hell's going on because he's a solid actor. He pops up in Bad Santa and he had a lot of work, but he is just, I don't know, he's getting the worst direction. He's every so over the top. It's so terrible. And in fact, the two leads are so over the top and absolutely ridiculous too. Um, there is some nudity in the movie, which is probably the thing that people most look forward to in a Leprechaun movie at some times. Um, and uh, the plot of this one is Leprechaun's looking for a bride and we have this kind of period piece opening basically um, where Leprechaun uh, has this helper that um, he wants to get free, this slave, and he says, well, after I'm married, I'll let you go, but then he wants to pick his daughter to marry, and this guy will have none of it, and the Leprechaun curses him and says, I will marry your like your most attractive relative in the future in a thousand years or something like that. So Leprechaun basically comes back, and he's looking for a bride. So that's what we have here and he has his eyes focused on this the this relation of course and it's the same actress this this beautiful young girl who's dating this kind of loser who works for his uncle at this kind of like death ride and that's essentially it um so we have leprechaun kind of running through the city which is nice because it's a little different from the first one he's more in a rural area and you know he rips off some fingers some shenanigans there's some decent gore effects michael mcdonald is in here which kind of surprised me to see him pop up in here and he's over the top and ridiculous um now i know he's been killed by two uh kind of horror icons i won't spoil the other one but i think you know who it is um yeah so it's not a great movie uh it, it's okay it's exactly what i kind of expected rewatching a leprechaun movie i don't love it i don't hate it it is what it is it's leprechaun too
Okay, this next one is uh, an anthology from 1994. It's an Italian film. It's like Degeneration or something, Degeneration, but it, it translates to The Degenerates. And this is an Italian horror anthology from 1994. So it's late, kind of in the Italian horror cycle. Um, the biggest actress in the movie, or biggest actor, is Aja Argento. She's in one of the shorts. Um, so there's a lot of shorts in this. And, and like I just said about Bad Candy, when a movie has tons and tons of shorts in its anthology and it's like an hour and 40 minute runtime, you start to lose track of how many different shorts are in here one of which is like three minutes long and you're like this is an art film this isn't really a horror short or anything like that so uh basically the first one um I'm, i know i'm mixing these up if i remember all these i'm gonna mix up the order but one of them involves this kind of uh this guy who goes to these gay clubs and everything like that and he picks up this very strange man who is says he's a vampire there's a nice twist in here this one's kind of funny this one's all right i i enjoyed my time with it then there's another short here where like these parents are like arguing to uh, about television their kids watch too much television yada 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 being hypocritical and then um they're like i don't let my daughter watch television yada 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 and then we cut back and the daughter um is watching tv and the news and all this kind of stuff and the television actually starts to act out as like kind of a villain and chase her around the house and everything like that that feels kind of like a twilight zone episode to a certain extent like the you know the gambling the slot machine one i remember that this one is okay um the ending i guess it's definitely trying to prove kind of a point and say a message we all then we have um this one short in here that um, involves this guy uh, who's very nervous about a surgery. He's very uh, upset and everything. And this feels to be some sort of weird totalitarian kind of, uh, you know, uh, government or world that he lives in and the twist in this one is really solid i can't really give too much more away about this one without completely spoiling the hell out of it um and then we have kind of one of the longer ones here which is about this guy he's a taxi driver and he seems to be kind of losing his mind or losing his grip on reality and one day an invisible man gets in his his car and tells him to go somewhere and he just starts like bargaining with him and it's confused with himself and you don't know if he's having a mental break and the twist in this one is really good i thought that one was very effective and the last one is a super bizarre tale, um, which I don't necessarily, I did forget the first one, so I'll go back to that one. There's this weird one where this guy is essentially kind of uh, working and this person knocks on the door and he's very bizarre. He looks like the plumber from beyond after he's had his eyes ripped off, uh, ripped out and everything, Joe the plumber. And he basically uh, demands a tip and he's so very confused and he does something he shouldn't do. And then there's a funny kind of reveal twist. There's a lot of comedy elements in this one. And then the final one here involves Ajar to and just kind of like this guy who's desperate for money and then like right away these kind of crazy like guerrilla style filmmakers try to kidnap him think uh cecil be demented or something like that and they want to make a film a snuff film with them but then there's another filmmaker that he knows that's his wife that's after him and then Aja argento is there it's just really bizarre and really crazy and really wild and kind of funny and quirky and this little entertaining so i might have missed a couple here and there but um it's not a perfect anthology it's just okay but it is some interesting stuff in here and it's just kind of a weird kind of punk rock kind of energy to it in a lot of the shorts so i don't really know where to go with it but um i guess it was an interesting kind of look at a movie to be honest because i had not really heard anyone talk about this until we got 1994 i'm not going to leave any of the italian movies on the table of course an anthology from italy doesn't happen too mo too often it had aja argento so why not um i didn't hate my time with it i didn't love my time with it thought it was a little long it is on youtube if you want to check it out all right guys we're here for i guess it would be a blind spot because you picked it and I hadn't seen it, and you hadn't seen it. There's I never heard one. of it. You never heard of this movie? 
How could you never hear of that? I even watch uh, it. Stop. It's called Village of the Damned. It's by a guy, what was his, uh, directed by Wolf Rilla. Uh, I'm not too familiar with this director. I'm sure he's done a bunch of stuff, and I've probably seen a couple, and everybody's going to be like, you ain't seen Wolf Rilla, and they just go to Wikipedia or something and pull 30 movies he did, and you're like, you ain't seen <laughs> I don't have that on the top of my head. Or or I probably would see what he did and be like, duh. But, I do. No, you don't. Anyways, this movie stars George Sanders and uh, Barbara Shelley. Yeah, yes. from Hammer. From a bunch of Hammer movies. Uh, George Sanders is a classic actor. Uh, he, he was pretty well respected, but uh, being the Cretan that I am, I know him from Psychomania, which is a cheesy kind of British horror film about like ghouls or something on motorcycles. It's been a while since I watched it. I think Arrow put it out. It's a, it's kind of a cool movie. Um, George Sanders is excellent in this movie. He's he's the best part, hands down. He's okay. He's the best part. He is the best part. He's uh, uh, the main character, right? Yeah. The professor. Yeah. yeah. So the plot of this film is, it's actually based off a novel. What was it called? The Mid Midwitch uh, something. Midwitch uh, Cuckoos or something? Yeah, the Midwitch Cuckoos. What essentially happens is one day in this small town in a geographic location, only in this town, uh, everybody falls asleep at a certain time. No one can get to uh, communicate with anyone. No one's waking up. So uh, eventually anybody that crosses this threshold passes out and they sleep until... Everybody just wakes up all of a sudden completely fine. Uh, but about, I think, 12 women end up being pregnant. And everybody's confused by it. Um, they don't know. Uh, you know, there's people that think that they were cheated on, all that kind of stuff. And the babies grow at a ra- uh, rapid pace, and they end up being all delivered on the same day. So right away, it's very strange right off the bat. George Sanders and his wife, Barbara Shelley, were... A, George Sanders is an older man, so mm-hmm. he really wasn't expecting to have a kid, but he's ecstatic. You kind of suggest that maybe one of them is uh, incapable of having children. You, I would think so, right? Yeah, maybe. Because they're so old already, and it's just mm-hmm. like... So he married older in life, and he's probably in his 50s at that point already. So mm-hmm. what happens is they all have the kids, and they all look the same. They don't look anything like the parents they all have. I, I would assume blonde hair, because it's very fair hair. It's a black and white film, and these kind of dead eyes, and these eyes glow up. It it turns out that these kids have a special power, and it also turns out that this isn't the only place that this has happened. Which Correct. is another interesting concept about the movie. It happens in Russia, and China. Alaska, and China, Mongolia. Well, that that's an interesting part as you later find out how they handled it and everything. Mm-hmm. And that the United States' a small town is kind of basing their next move on everything that's happened. So it's a, it's a really interesting movie. It's more of a sci, it's sci-fi horror. But yeah, it also has that gothic small town feel, which is very cool. Yeah, there's definitely some gothic elements. Um, it is like a sci-fi almost... Um, I don't want to say body snatchers, but... It's not a body snatcher. Yeah, it's not really a body snatcher no. feel. But I, I, it's definitely you would assume some sort of alien. Definitely alien. Um, you know, like like where do these things come from? They never really quite explain in the movie, which I like because it's just. A, it was, I feel like was it a solar flare? They don't even know. It's just no. There's, there's nothing. Out. There's nothing. It's literally like everybody just falls asleep and wakes up. Um. I, it, like it starts. I think one guy's on the phone and he's like the main character. Yeah, uh, he's on the phone with his brother-in-law, and he calls him and tells him to, 
you know, go grab a book and he like just passes out. And, and so it, the brother-in-law yeah. drives into town and then that's when you find out, hey, everybody here is asleep. The, the brother-in-law is actually played by, he's like the kind of wimpy priest in, I believe it's Scars of Dracula, the Hammer film. And mm-hmm. uh, there was a nice little small role from Peter Vaughn in here as a yeah, cop. Yeah, Peter Vaughn. Uh, mm-hmm. Which was great seeing. I, I was hoping he'd be in it a little more. He wasn't. But yeah, it, it's a lot of discussions. The movie flies by quick. Like I was like, how, how long are we in this? Like you expect more carnage and stuff, but mm-hmm. the movie goes at such a, a fast pace that um and the ending's great like um and like george sanders is probably like i said he's the most likable the most uh he's just the most reasonable and human character in the film Mm -hmm. uh yeah this is a really great film and the idea is just an amazing idea obviously it's been done again it was done a sequel children of the damned okay and then there was a remake in 1995 by john carpenter believe it or not really yeah. i mean this has like a carpenter feel yeah. to it um and, you could see it there and the remake i was familiar with i being a carpenter fan and everything like that i'd seen that a bunch of times and when it came out and everything and it had uh of course it has uh christopher reeve in it and kirstie uh kirstie alley and there's a uh, mark hamill's in it george buck flower so it's got really? a nice little cast yeah, okay. yeah um it's a little bit more gratuitous i would say mm-hmm. being 95 and everything like that but i i just don't have all that much to say except that it's another vastly interesting sci-fi movie that has really big concepts and it executes them fairly well um you can imagine mm-hmm. what possibilities would happen because all these i should mention that these children or village uh, uh like have this this hive mentality like mm-hmm. when one thinks one learns something they all learn something and together they're very powerful because they have uh, telepathy, I would say, or some sort of, yeah, they control your mind. So there's some really stuff. They, the villagers, of course, get their torches. Mm-hmm. All the Frankenstein, that kind of stuff. But, yeah. Um, yeah, um, so, yeah, they have, like, a like a hive mind. Um, they kind of, like, find out that they are, like, they're stronger. They have, like, an increased, like, telekinetic or telepathic range. Um, they can mind read. And, you know, you find out, like, w- the different places where this happened at, like, as this was starting to escalate, like, their powers, it's like, oh, we gotta do something, you know, what, like, what should we do? Is this, like, the like, next step of mankind, or is this, like, aliens interfering with uh, the evolution of mankind? Yeah, we're trying to stop us, for um, sure. And, and the, the movie never really gives you an explanation. It never really goes into detail, like, where these come from, what's going on. And it's more or less because, like, like the uh, the children are kind of like like removed from emotion, and that's one thing that they say to is it George Sanders? What's his name? The main guy's name? George Sanders. It's yeah. His character. To, well, they say to his character, it's like you could be like us if he had lear- if you learned to be removed from your emotion, you could be just as powerful as us. Yeah. But of course, it's like. Well, no, you have to exist in a society. There's rules. We can't just, you know, go around making each other blow each other's heads off. Why not? I mean, you know, why not? All right. So I, I would personally, I don't know if we do the, I never remember if we give our ratings before or after. Doesn't I'll give you a rating. Don't let that book influence you. What's your rating? Four out of five. Four out of five. You already looked at the book. I, had I, I give it spot. a four out of five, too. It's, it's, yeah. it's solid. The idea is great, too. Yeah. So, John Stanley's Creature Features, uh, three and a half out of five, 1960, faithful version of John Winham's Midwitch Cuckoos, thanks to director Wolf Rilla, who co-wrote the adaptation by Sterling Siliphant uh, and George Barclay. A small community in England is isolated by a strange invisible shield and its inhabitants affected by prolonged sleep. Later, the village's pregnant women give birth to the hollow-eyed children who possess irresistible hypnotic powers and grow up to dominate adults, especially their fathers. 
Ultimately, their singular alien children will have a devastating effect on mankind. This British film generated a sequel, Children of the Dam, equally well done. George Sanders, Barbara Shelley, Michael Gwynn, Lawrence Naismith, remade by John Carpenter in 1995, MCA, Laser, MGM, um, UA, with Children of the Damned. So, yeah, uh, there was an old Warner Brothers archive DVD with both films on there, and both of them have gotten a Blu-ray release since from Warner Archive. Okay. Are you going to read your book? Oh, yeah, it's my book. It's actually not mine. It's Tear on tape, James book. O'Neill. He just hands it to me and expects me to do what he tells me the, to do. And I let, I gave you the easier reviews to read. <laughs> okay, Village of the Damned. He gives this a three and a half out of four stars. Uh, MGM UA 1960 and R77 Min. You want me to read the book or not? Impressively understated version of John... Windham's novel, The Midwitch Cuckoos. Most of the women of a small English village churn up pregnant after everyone is inexplicably rendered unconscious for 12 hours. And nine months later, actually, it's actually like five months later. Yeah. This guy didn't pay attention. Nine months later, they give birth to strangely similar blonde babies with super normal mental abilities. Crisp and chilling. With solid acting from a great British ensemble cast and sharp monochrome photography. Sequel, Children of the Damned. Um, what do you like better, this movie or uh, is it We Are the Damned? Or um, are the the Damned? Hammer movie, which is yeah. clearly uh, made after Village of the Damned, which is a cash-in, a sci-fi movie about children that are dangerous as well. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take shit from this, but um, I prefer These Are the Damned. because Me too. Probably because Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. Um, and it's dark. Eh, it's not darker. They're both pretty dark. They both They're end both dark. They're both pretty dark, yeah. Um, I, I I think that These Are Damned is a bit more downtrodden. It's a bit more... Because, because in this movie, in, in Village of a Damned, like, I'd punt those little fuckers. I'm not even going to lie. You'd be like, dead in ten seconds. I don't even matter. Right when you thought about it, you're done. I wouldn't think about it. It's my natural instinct to kick children. Um, <laughs> so... But in uh, These Are the Damned, it's, um, I think it's a bit more sympathetic towards the children. Like, No, the children aren't the villains. The government is. The government's the villains. And, and I and, think they And this them. one, uh, the government is iffy, but they're not the villains. But these are probably, what, 10 years apart? Iffy? No, a few years apart. Only a few? How, how many years? I said a few years apart. Well, a few. That's. I mean, I, I mean, need a about three or four. Three, a two, few three. is three to four. Two, two to three. three is few. A couple to a few to some years apart. A decade Do you want me to look up the day <laughs> to see what it is? 1960, and I'm pretty sure it's 1963 is because the Because these are both British movies, so like, what... Hammer was trying to cash in! That's what's was going he... on. But no, but if you think about it, you know, in this movie, the government's the good guys. And they're not in... that good. They're okay. I mean, they still want to kill children, but who doesn't? And then in the... <laughs> You're going to get put on a list. Um, You're getting put on a list. They don't know my, my real name. Um... And then in the, uh, you know, then you have these are damned, and it's the exact opposite. The government's the bad guys, you know. So like, like what, what, what changed the story? I, man changed the story. Um, I'm just rambling. I one's actually, a book. I've I been told up, you one's a book. I've been up for for quite a bit. Um, <laughs> look how angry he's getting. Fucking, <laughs> fucking rambling on. I have this all the time. My brain, like this video, should have been ended like little. You literally just repeated ago. everything that I said, just like because in three just... longer sentences. You're like, I was like, yeah, yeah, and then so, so, so you're like, 
And then you just say everything I said slow. I feel like that happens so many times and everything's <laughs> done. It's just like, none people are like, Jeremy had a good point there. I'm like, I just said it three minutes. <laughs> no, no. I I had the best points. And, 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 it's probably and, not even in this book. Why? Well, it's in the book. We've read the books. You, we how, do you, read... how do you remember which books we read? I'm so not Because we only read two right books. Now. And it's not in the book. Really? We are the damned? We are the damned. These are the damned. I think it's we are the damned. Get 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 Wikipedia up here. I can't get Wikipedia. Whoa. Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> this is ending. If it's not here, if it's not under we, it's done. It's not. It's, it's over. Not, oh, it's that, not in the damn book. Who gives a shit? It's over. I, I, it's, <laughs> it's, out of, it's under the damned typically anyway. So it's 1962-63. Um, this one's 1960. We know which one was fucking first. I told you a few years. Why do you have to fucking get down to fucking the nitty gritty when you absolutely never got down to the nitty gritty in your entire life? What year did Wizard of Oz come out? We're done. 1943. <laughs> <Remember> that? <laughs> We're like, 1962. <laughs> I don't fucking remember. I never remember that movie came out. I never remember. It's always like 20 years before I think it is. Exactly. And I'm like, what? Yeah. And I do the same thing every time. But we're done. What's, we're done. Oh, what's next week for me? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know either. What am I doing? You have um, to pick. I get to pick now. No, you don't. Because you pick. picked both I mine pick. back to back. Because you like, were not prepared. But now I'm prepared because I know what movie <laughs> I want to watch and it's not Halloween. So you're like, oh, you should totally watch no, it. No, but guess what? I got a perfect one what? for the November weather. It involves a festival. And you've never seen it. I know. I haven't watched it in a long time, and it's a classic. It's not a Stephen King. It's is a it? Stephen King. We're not watching a Stephen King. I will actually quit the show right the fuck now if it's a Stephen King. You can't do that. I can't. He makes twenty percent of the horror movies. I I I have bodily anatomy or whatever. The word. I don't even. What are you talking about? I have free rights. Free rights. Free rights. <laughs> um. We're going to do The Wicker Man, which is not a Stephen King. Okay, I'll do The Wicker Man. Okay, Christopher I mean, Lee, uh, Edward Woodward, I, I think uh, fucking Ingrid Pitt's in it, Brick Eklund. So it's a it's a classic movie. I'm so on bitch about it, though. I just don't remember which cut to watch. I've we, seen the director's cut years back. Do we watch the theatrical? Do we watch the final cut? Do we watch the director's cut? We, we watch for shortest cut. No, we're not. We're not. This is like Blade Runner. Wicker Man has three fucking cuts, probably more than oh, that. Jesus. So we're gonna have to watch all three. Is this a long movie? The like, director's cut is. Well, I'm thinking we're gonna watch the final cut or the theatrical cut. If you pick a Stephen King movie, um, I I will pick War and Peace, and, and we're watching them. No, week. it's not it's, one it's sitting. One it's pick. not one sitting. But guess what? What? After War and Peace is done, there's no more War and Peace. There's about 400 more Stephen King. So I'll be like, yes, we're watching the Stan miniseries. If you think that I can't look <laughs> deep into Russian cinema and pull out some... I've watched enough Russian cinema. <laughs> you can't pick Agony. You can't pick Hard to Be a God. You can't pick fucking... i never seen them, off so my they're, car. They're, they're, they're new to me. Well, why don't um, you pick Stalker? I haven't seen that. I'd watch that. That's three hours of a guy walking look, in art. Look, you can't be movie. telling me what to pick on my week. You did that two weeks in yeah, a row. Yeah, because you don't have any picks. You're just like, let's watch, uh, let's but, watch hold the Hold on, role. guys. Oh, I just want to be perfectly <laughs> clear that he just naps me out at whatever state I'm in and says, stand in this room and talk about this movie. I'm like, oh, where, where, what did we watch? Where am I? Like, I gotta go to work, son. And, uh, so, yeah, I don't always have a movie picked up, but this time I do. Well, I did it in my terrible state because I just got up. I'm done. Okay, bye. Wicker Man <laughs> next week. All right, let's get into these questions, answers, comments, all that good stuff. Ken Coakley. 
Um, so basically, I asked your favorite horror movie of 1994. So, uh, Ken Coakley, my favorite horror film of 1994 was actually a miniseries, which was Stephen King's The Stand. Of course, I know Stand. Uh, it started out great and just got better and better. It was also uh, well cast with Gary Sinise, whom I never heard of before. Molly Ringwall and Rob Lowe made a believer out of me after having lambasted them throughout the 80s. Another good one was Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I also liked Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, as it was the closest film adaptation of the book. Two non-horror films I was lucky enough to see in theaters when they first came out were Ed Wood and the best film of 1994, in my opinion, Clerks. I remember walking out of the theater and waiting to go, wanting to go back to see it again. Another thing Ed Wood and Clerks had in common was that they were both in black and white, which looks amazing on a theater screen. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Um, Snoopstock, I kind of like Ernest Rides Again. I made a joke, I think, about something about Ernest. Um, I picked up one of the Ernest Blu-rays or something. I have not watched Ernest Rides Again in so long. Um, uh, Leah Shurnett, not the same 90s year, but I highly recommend Habit from 95. I thought it was great. That is one movie I do have, and I've seen a lot of Larry Fezzanet movies, and the one that I think I would like the most is Habit, so i got to check that out. Um, and I've seen a lot of the vampire movies from like the the 90s that have that kind of aesthetic, from my understanding, like addiction. And so and there's one 94 called Naja, which I'm going to watch. So what what WTF, what the flick? I'm not just saying this to be different, but Halloween 3 is not only my favorite sequel, but I like it as much as the original. It might be because it's the first Halloween that I've seen. Also, Step Brothers is pretty fucking great. It's right up there with Dirty Work, in my opinion. No, I love Halloween 3. And I understand like a lot of people just like, I always make fun of contrarians that are always just like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre's terrible movie. I'm like, whatever. I'm Nobody cares. Um, Halloween 3, I feel like, has gained a reputation for like the last 20 years and been beloved. So, I mean, I can understand why someone would like it. Um, and it's so different um, from sla the slasher movies that, like, I mean, I can understand if someone wasn't a big slasher fan to like Halloween 3 over the slasher films. Um, Tim Hayes, as an angel for Satan I've been waiting to see for a while. Um, wanting. I'm glad it has an English dub finally. I think it was bootlegged for a while. Anthony Steffen was in The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. Yeah, he was also in Killer Fish this week, Django the Bastard. Um, he was a guy that I, I was iffy on, but after uh, the recent like few months, it's like, oh no, man, he was great. I don't know what the hell. It's Sometimes it just takes a while for a guy to grow on you, but I've seen him in so much stuff, and I just wasn't giving him the love he deserved. He's very good. He's very good. Um, Jay Mitchell Beard loved Angel for Satan bought the previous release of Nightmare Castle which was great as well I hope they get the rights to the to Ghost and give it a decent release Killer Condom is hilarious Nick Mua my top three from 1994 will come as no surprise to you Wes Craven's New Nightmare in the Mouth of Madness, John Carpenter at his best, Critics Be Damned, and The Puppet Masters. Isn't Donald Sutherland great when fighting slimy critters from outer space? I've not watched The Puppet Masters since probably 1994. I do have the Blu-ray, so I would do look forward to rewatching it, and I know that uh, there was source material uh, book short story or something. I don't know if you enjoy uh, Jadar, uh, Gerard Depardieu's acting, but he did a few thriller horror movies, including 1994's La Machine. De Depardieu plays a psychiatrist who swaps minds with a serial killer. I do know of the movie. It is on my short list. I don't know if I'll get to it, though. Questions. Who would you want to swap bodies with for a week? Oh, I definitely, I know this is going to sound stupid and, and perverse, but I would want to swap bodies with a female. This because I would like to know how it feels to be a female for a week. Just just a week, you know? Just to be somebody completely different from myself. Um, swap bodies with or swap, you know, people. Like, if it's a person completely, I would just swap, and it's going to sound shitty, to a really slimy rich person and then just uh, go hide a bunch of money 
And then when I was back to myself, I would go find said money because my mind would know it. <laughs> I know that sounds shitty, but hey, that's what I would do either way. Um, a really rich, terrible female and then hide the money and then find it. Um, that's what I would do. Um, you stated you like Midsommar. Do you prefer the theatrical or director's cut? I've not actually watched the director's cut. I saw the theatrical in theaters and then I rewatched it for the summer series because I had to watch the theatrical and I loved it. But uh, I definitely want to import that. Uh, not import, but buy that 4K director's cut eventually. Um with your home media, there is always a possibility for a director's cut. Do you feel that this has become a money-grabbing scheme? No, sometimes. I mean, a money-grabbing scheme was a new unrated version, and basically it's just the same version with like two minutes of footage they just add back in of improving actors on a comedian movie. That's a money-grabbing scheme. Um, I like the idea of a director being able to put on another version of his film that he didn't think would be good for theaters, but would be good for audience. Maybe both versions on the disc would be interesting. So, Michael Bay? Correction, it's Tim Van Patten's brother, Vincent, who's in Hell Knight. Vincent is also the one from Rock and Roll Nightmare. Love your content. Keep up the great work. I make a joke about uh, them looking identical and not making, and at least I didn't do Dick Van Patten. Um, and he laughs. All good. I hear you, Tim. Uh, and I let it slide. Then I heard it the second time I had to slap correction on you. LOL. Dick Van Patten, that's hilarious. You're the man, Mr. Parker. Thank you, man. And then Tim Hayes comes in with uh, some information about the Van Pattens. I think Dick is their dad. Vincent used to be married to actress Betsy Russell. Um, they had a couple kids, but later divorced. He remarried soap opera actress and star of the original House on Sorority Row, Aline Davidson. They now have a son together. But I remember a while back, she was help raising her two stepsons. I used to follow her on Twitter. She gets way too political for my taste on Twitter. Loved her on TV's Day of Our Lives, and I've seen her in the trailer for House on Sorority Row numerous times. I still need to see the full movie. She seems to be an excellent actress. Her hubby, Vincent, seems to be a pretty funny actor. Both, um, seems to be a pretty funny actor in both Rock and Roll Night, uh, High School and Hell Night. But Vincent is Vincent is not, um, is he? Yeah, Vincent is. Tim Van Patten's the one. So I'm getting mixed up again. So be uh, sat, watch Slash Eater the other day. It's definitely a great movie for fall season. I agree. Jason Bovey, hey, you ain't seen Village of the Dam. You ain't seen Village of the Dam. This is almost as shocking as Blindspot as Last Man on Earth. Holy shit, I love it. Yeah, it happens. There's just, like I said, I spent all my time watching uh, a lot of cheap movies as a kid. I watched a lot of classics, but I watched a lot of cheap movies too. I was a weird person. Um, I just, whatever came my way. You know, that's another thing. Anyone Oakridge, V.I. Warshawski, LOL. My dad took me to see that movie when I was like nine, and for some reason I remember loving it. Step Brothers, I never saw, and like like you, people were encouraging me to pick it up, and I didn't like it at all. It's one of those movies that everyone loves that I hate. Ilk Vomit. First, Tommy running around Haddonfield with a baseball bat. LOL. This is some spoilers for ha Halloween Kills. Uh, LOL. Uh, like, come on, Tommy. Can't you break into a gun shop and get a fucking machine gun or something even remotely more dangerous than a plain old baseball bat? I was actually rooting for Tommy, but when you see how sad and pathetic he looks going around town with a plain old baseball bat, it doesn't give you much hope. Uh, I'm always thinking of the line from the original It when uh, the losers all grown up to get together to try and stop him. Beep, beep, Richie is the one person in the group who says, I hope somebody brought something useful, like a machine gun. Yeah. Okay, so um, basically I asked the same question on Facebook and we got some answers. Uh, Jonathan Edward Smith, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, favorite 94 movie, of course. Joss Hart, uh, Hartman, New Nightmare, Brain Scan, The Crow. Bill Casanelli in The Mouth of Madness, Robert Mazzola, he agrees, such a great film, one of the best. Aaron Mazzola, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Daniel Roebuck, LaFleur, Serial Mom, Delamore, Delamore. Del Morte, Del Amore, um, Cemetery Man, Alex James, Serial Mom, Color of the Night, uh, Jamoon Sinobita, uh, Shawshank Redemption, and Serial Mom. Shawshank Redemption is a horror movie. I guess it's, it's your choice, whatever. Derek B., Guyver 2, and Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. Uh, Randall Stoddard, um, that's what I'm saying, man. Dark Hero is the tits. Guyver 2 is awesome, guys. I enjoy both Guyver movies. Derek B., um, 
Solid Snake as Guyver, 10 out of 10. Uh, James D. Cokes, Mosquito, Nightwatch, Scanner Cop, and some of the obvious ones above. Sky Gross, Shattered Dead, Cemetery Man, New Nightmare, Shattered Dead. Person after my own heart right there. And Cemetery Man, gotta have Cemetery Man. Marco Vitian, only film that matters, Tammy and the T-Rex. I don't know about all that. Brandon Salisbury, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, In the Mouth of Madness, Interview with the Vampire, Wolf. Tim Walker, Cemetery Man, and In the Mouth of Madness, both great films. Danny Torkel, New Nightmare, and In the Mouth of Madness. Peter England, Delamore, Delamore. In the Mouth of Madness, Interview the Vampire, got a lot of those. John Sullivan, can y'all can you call Natural Born Killers a horror film? That's a good question. Not a bad question, Bert. Uh, Lex Crossley, um, one of my five, five flicks of any genre, mate. That's what he says about Natural Born Killers. And uh, John Soloway uh, replies, like Romper, Stomper, or Fury Road, the first time you see it's on the big screen is unforgettable. Daniel Richardson, New Nightmare. Lacey Lou, Serial Mom, Leprechaun 2, The Crow. More recently, watch Brain Scan. Yeah, I love that. Ron Ford, the one I wrote, of course, The Fear. Um, awesome, but... When we do these, we have to set some sort, set forth some rule, and we picked just off internet movie database only. Like so, even if the movie is made in '94, if 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 it wasn't released in you know until '95 or whatever, I know it's stupid. I know that people are like, but it was released in '94. Internet movie database is wrong. We just go by internet movie database to simplify things, but that might be biting us in the ass because a bunch of movies keep changing. Um, Steve Van Meter, Children of the Corn 3, Phantasm 3, Michael E. Cullen, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Adam Chappie. I don't recall any horror films that were out in 94, although The Crow Counts, I love that one, but it's more of an action film. Belinda McKay, New Nightmare, Pumpkinhead 2, and Leprechaun 2, Don't Judge Me. Pumpkinhead 2 falls in the same boat. It's listed as 93 for some reason. Sam Kelly Mills, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Tony Araro, Cemetery Man in the Mouth of Madness, Brain Scan. Ta- Nathan Thomas Millander, New Nightmare, uh, Cemetery Man in the Mouth of Madness, Phantasm 3, Shallow Grave. Shallow Grave is one i got to add to watch my watch list. I have the Blu-ray. Uh, Daniel Carlson, West Crimson Nightmare. Gabriel's in the Mouth of Madness is definitely my favorite, but Interview with the Vampire is also up there. Harrison J. Bay, so many good ones and bad ones. Haha, but New Nightmare easily as for bad one. Pumpkinhead 2. Ryan Matthew Ziegler, Blood, Lust, Subspecies 3, Night of the Demons 2, Horror Adjacent, Kinda, Ed Wood. Uh, Anthony Brownlee, West Crimson Nightmare, Phantasm three fan pumpkin day two nathaniel hill by new nightmare in the mouth of madness death machine dead christensen phantasm three cemetery man new nightmare in the mouth of madness how many answers you guys got um zach hill body melt which doesn't count as 94 for us uh angel dust aftermath brain scan shatter dead the regenerated man the king of meat you the kind of meat you can't buy at the store there's a movie called gore horror from that year that i wanted to see um i love gore horror's good stuff i'd say serial mom again and it's probably top of my list but i don't think it counts as horror um jason jordan i also replied to him and said gorotica out of the trilogy by hugh gallagher gore horror uh gorgasm and gorotica gorotica is the best gore horror second best jordan baby my top 10 new nightmare in the mouth of madness cemetery man brain scan leprechaun 2 night of the demons 2 the club the fear guyver dark hero technically not horror but close funny man uh norberto elgari west Graves nightmare interview the vampire wolf serial mom in the mouth of madness night of the demons 2 phantasm 3 dustin mills interview the vampire in the mouth of madness eric waters Eric Waters, In the Mouth Madness, Mark Partridge, I Wish I Could Remember 94, oh, uh, Rye Guy, Wolf, Interview the Vampire, In the Mouth Madness, New Nightmare, Stan, Brain Scan, The Crow, if it's to be counted indefinitely. It's a multifaceted film, so why the hell not? Other than that, I don't find 94 to offer much in the way of horror. That is, unless you start counting TV shows and whatnot, 94 doesn't seem to have a whole lot of gems, unless I'm missing some, in which case I'll, I'll think of later. Um, and he mentions, uh, Wolf, The Crow, and The Mouth of Madness interview just being some of my favorite films, period. You're like uh, Dorfling, Dark Waters, which I think counts as 93, which I love. I love that movie. And The Mouth of Madness, Cemetery Man, Roadkill, The Last Days of John Martin. There it is. Love that one. And My Sweet Satan. 94 was real shit with horror in general. The worst period, probably. For instance, mid-90s saw many sequels to movies that were bad to begin with. 
I basically replied to him and said, 96 to 2006 is the worst for me. I just hate how everything looks. And he says, yeah, um, but he mentions he likes Bad Mood, Dentist, uh, Fudo, Ebola Syndrome, and Uncle Sam from that year. Um, but, I mean, every movie, every year has some gems, so. Um, then, uh, yep, we have Christopher Bickle, A Cemetery Man, Bill Rodriguez. Overall, very weak year, but my standouts, Night Watch, Cemetery Man, S-Wing, then The Mouth of Madness, Mute Witness, which is 95, I think, The Kingdom, The Stand, New Nightmare, Heavenly Creatures, Aftermath. Kevin Michael Jones, New Nightmare in the Mouth of Madness, Cemetery Man, Interview with the Vampire, Brain Skin, Nausea, Timothy Matthew Hayes, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Stephen King's The Stand, and Interview with a Vampire. So, yeah, um, that is all the answers. And, of course, my question of the week is going to be the opposite of what are some of your favorites from 94. What are some avoids? Which horror films from 1994 would you guys absolutely avoid? I'm probably going to watch them anyways, but, hey, I just would like to hear kind of the consensus on 1994 before I dive into 100 movies from it. Even though I have my own idea, and I've seen a lot of the movies from 94. When I did the master list, I have, like, them broken down. I have, like, 300, 400 movies in the master list. I have, like, the first, like, you know, 50 or so, um, and then I have the next, like, 50, and I have, like, the ones that are kind of mainstream or popular hidden gems kind of in the first category by consensus. And, like, in the first like hundred movies, I had seen forty of them already. So it was like it's ninety four is a year I'm pretty familiar with just from growing up and being born in eighty six and going to the video store a lot. So yeah. Anyways, what are the worst or some avoids from nineteen ninety four? Thank you. And I guess we're gonna hop into the update. Okay, this update's fairly large. Probably be the last large one in a long time. So uh, yep, we got the vinegar syndrome order came in. Ticks in four K. Ticks is in four K. Yeah, that's insane. It's awesome. And I'm infested. Clint Howard on the back there. So we have this hard case. And then on top of that, like, that's not good enough. We're going to put another slip cover inside the original VHS cover, which uh, terrified me as a kid. Um, I was so scared of this movie as a kid. Me and my cousin were terrified of ticks. It's a lot of fun. When was this one made? Early 90s, 93. So, yeah, I remember being obsessed with this one when it came out and just being terrified of it, too. I remember me and my cousin having arguments about who was going to get the... They, we had this like uh, bed, this like bunk bed at my grandfather's house. And it was like a bed, but then there was another bed that would slide underneath the bed that you pulled out. It was on the ground. And we argued. We literally would argue who was going to sleep on that one. We're like, no, the ticks will get me on that one. And I tried to convince him otherwise, and just because I didn't want to sleep on the tick, tick floor. There was no ticks there. There was no ticks on the floor. There was no ticks in the house. I, I don't know why we just assumed ticks were all over everywhere after watching ticks. But so, okay, then we have The Laughing Dead, which has some nudity on the cover, which I believe I've seen parts of this, and I don't remember it connecting very well, but the print I saw looked awful. I can barely tell what's going on. This movie's supposed to be completely bonkers. Um, what is that creature? Oh, wow. I can't wait to watch this. This looks insane. I think it's going to be beautiful, too. This is a super weird movie with lots of monsters. I, I This should be a treat. This is going to definitely be a treat. So, The Laughing Dead. Um, probably remastered better than it ever will look for no apparent reason. Uh, then we have, I'm trying to pull the vinegar syndromes, nothing underneath from 1985, which is an interesting Italian horror film with Donald Pleasance and uh, double feature with too beautiful to die. I love seeing both of these movies together. Uh, yeah, I've never seen Too Beautiful to Die, so that should be very cool. I know it has a reversible cover in there. Both movies are in there, both 80s kind of Italian horror films or Gialli or whatever. Uh, beautiful Way to Die. Uh, I mean, um, Nothing Underneath has kind of like a psychic style to it. Um, then we have this awesome release right here, which uh, is the Kamel Keaton in Italy box set. Yeah, that's right. Uh, these sets are amazing. Uh, 
that's so cool with the eyes there. Um, so what do we got in this set? We have Madeline, which I, I'm not too familiar with this one. Ne never seen this one. Um, Tragic Ceremony, which was put out by Dark Sky years back. Um, I've heard good things about that one. 72, is it? Or is it 72? 72. And Sex of the Witch, which is a cover art I am familiar with, but I've never actually seen this one. So, uh, yeah, what an awesome set. Uh, who else is in this sucker? Donald O'Brien. I mean, all these movies are going to have at least one actor that you recognize. Um, I have just been so impressed with Vinegar Syndrome lately. They just have been doing such a cool, good job. Um, and I know some people are like, ah, some of the stuff they release on that. I just do the yearly subscription, and I always will. Um, then we have uh, The Grave, which was a Vinegar Syndrome archive movie. Um, and this is a movie I'm not familiar with uh, at all. Like... They do that sometimes. They'll release a movie, and this seems to be more of like a thriller horror. I'm not too sure about it, but it sounded super interesting. Um, it has uh, Craig Schaefer and Josh Charles. There was somebody else in it. Keith David is in here, too. So I was like, wow, um, look forward to checking this one out for sure. Um, it's just that there's not enough time to watch all these movies. There never will be. Um, I have enough to last me a lifetime as it is. So we have Death of Nintendo which is, uh, what, what company is this? This is an Altered Innocence, which is a really good company. It puts a lot of interesting contemporary movies. So, uh, yeah, the film is Stand By Me with Circumcision. Okay. Uh, yeah, this sounds pretty cool. I've never seen this one. Just sounded interesting enough to grab it. Um, Jeremy might watch that one as he is. A, I think it does involve, I can't even do anything right today. I'm dropping everything. Uh, I think he is, uh, it does involve some sort of gaming system in it. I'm not sure if that title is just a name only, but uh, he loves uh, his kind of, um, you know, video game stuff. This one here from Dark, uh, what was this company? Saturn's Core, um, which I'm excited about from 1994. Great SOV movie, Shatter Dead, God Hates You glad this bad boy came this is a crazy sov movie um and people that aren't familiar with sov movies then um i don't know what to tell you but this is one of those ones that's just so different and unique really recommend checking out shattered dead for people it's it's one of my favorite sovs then we have boarding house speaking of sovs uh yeah i've never watched boarding house to be honest i know this movie it just it's a film that has so much, you know, infamy. It's one of the first SOV movies made for the market, Bleeding Skull here. Um, and it just never really got much uh, love. But uh, I wonder if this has both versions, that theatrical cut and then the original home video cut. It has two cuts on there. Um, I don't know the difference in running time. I know one is really long. I don't know if that's one of them. But then there is a Psycho Killer, previous on-release alternate cut of Boarding House. Um, yeah. So this has a lot of stuff going on. It's a two-disc set, so boarding house. If you ever not watch the trailer to that one. And then uh, what we have right here, we have, it's an egg for Bleeding Skull. So shit and champagne. I can't show you the back because, yeah, you guys can, you know why. What's on the back? Of course, nudity. But, uh, yeah, this looks like a fun, bizarre, crazy movie. This is from Utopia. I don't get all the... Um, movies that uh vinegar syndrome's like partner labels put out i just kind of pick the stuff that i think i'll enjoy or sounds interesting more of the horror oriented stuff stuff like that this one i really want to watch called the last matinee it's a 2021 movie this sounds straight up my alley um I, i'm hoping it, it's good enough to make my top 10 of the year 
from what I've heard, I, I think it, it very well might. I'm kind of into this stuff. It rains heavily in Montevideo on Sunday in 93. It's insane. We're getting so many of these throwbacks to the 90s, 93, 94. We have VHS 94. We have freaking... Um, uh, the the Fear Street 1994, and we drew 1994 for the for the um, the podcast, uh, the 22 shots. So it just feels like it's destiny. Now we have some other movies. We have the Kino Order, Valdez Horses, aka Chino, the Charles Bronson. This is a good flick. Um, John Sturgis directed this one. I have seen this one. It has a, a brilliant, beautiful uh, theme music that I've always enjoyed. Um, always gets stuck in your head. So that's Chino. Then we have Golden Needles with uh, John uh, Joe Don Baker and Jim Kelly. Not seen this one. Sounded interesting enough. What else do we got? Homebodies. Yeah, this is why my order from uh, my my sale order took a while because I wanted to get Homebodies. I love this movie. That that's not the victim screaming. It's you. Uh, if you guys not seen this movie, it's about a group of old folks that are going to get kicked out of their house. It's going to get torn down. So they basically start committing sabotage on this work site and getting people killed. And then it, it goes farther than that. It's a brilliant dark comedy. Um, playing God with uh, David Duchovny, Timothy Hutton, Angelina Jolie. Great price. It was dirt cheap. Five bucks. So I threw it in there. Sounded interesting. Cover looked familiar too, like I may have seen it years ago. Uh, Macho Callahan. Um, it's a Western here. Uh, yeah. J. Lee Cobb's in here, Gene uh, Seaberg. Uh, so it's got some familiar faces in here. Never seen this one. I'm a fan of westerns, so grab this one. The Quest, which, uh, a.k.a. Frog Dreaming, uh, interesting movie from uh, Brian Trichard Smith um, with uh, the kid from E.T., what is his name, Henry Thomas. Uh, kind of a family kind of fun movie. Now, I would say more kid-friendly, not family movie. Then we have Lucky Luciano, which, uh, yeah, has a has a, the great John uh, Gian Marie Volte in it, Rod Steiger, Edmund O'Brien, great cast, Vincent Gardenia. So, I've uh, never seen this one. Um, it looks very good, though. Then we have Journey to the Seventh Planet, which looks like a fun sci-fi movie with these weird little goblin creatures on there. Uh, why not? Uh, looks very fun. <laughs> Remastered in HD. You are in space. Beyond space. In futuristic 2001, the United Nations has sent a special team of scientists to explore Uranus. If that is, that first sentence, uh, first couple sentences in comedy gold, I don't know what is. Um, the Time Guardian. So is that Carrie Fisher? What is going on? I've never seen this movie. It's got a very fun cast in there. Um, it looks like Carrie Fisher, Dean Stockwell. What? Uh, yeah, this looks fun. Then we have uh, Night Terror, aka Night Drive, which is a horror TV movie, I believe it is. I've never never seen this one. Oh, uh, it's got the guy from freaking Swinging Cheerleaders and um, Three Hard Men. What was the, the last of the Hard Men? And he's also in fucking um, Ninety Two in the Shade. I can't think of that character actor's name, but he's he's very recognizable. Never forget him. Um, then we have Divorced Dad, um, which is by the Stephen Katansky did this one, or those guys did that. The Astron Six guys did it. This is Astron Six, directed by Conan, Connor Sweetley, Anna Brooks, and Matthew Kennedy. It actually wasn't um, the other guy in this one. It wasn't Katansky. So, yeah, this looks fun, entertaining, like what they do. And then last, uh, the Kino movies, at least, we have Death Ring. This cracks me up. It's like this cheesy action movie. It's like Norris, McQueen, Swayze, Drago. And it's just like, it's Swayze's brother, um, McQueen's son, and frickin' um, Norris, uh, Norris's brother. And Billy Drago, of course, is just Billy Drago. That shit's just comedy gold. So, yeah, 
<laughs> Look at this dude on the back. He's ready to go. Intense goons. And then we have uh, Poison Ivy, which I got from the Secret uh, Satan on the 22 Shots Exchange. Very, very. Thank you very much, James, for hooking me up with this. Um, this is the Poison Ivy collection. All four of the Poison Ivy movies. Uh, 92 Poison Ivy, Drew Barrymore. Then we have the sequel, 96, 97, and the third sequel. And then we have the fourth uh, from 2008, which looks like I probably won't be watching the fourth one, maybe. <laughs> but I remember seeing the first one. I remember thinking it pretty decent. Then we have Killer Party from Liam Fruitt, uh, which is a solid uh, director. He he kind of doesn't get much love. He's done a, quite a bit of decent uh, genre movies. So Killer Party, uh, glad to see Screen Factory release this one. Um, I have not seen it in years from 1986. Then we have Nothing But Trouble from Screen Factory. This is actually a Shout Factory release. This is a lot of fun. This movie's pretty fun. Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Debbie Moore. Um, I know it's hated by everybody. It was always like kind of an infamous flop. But I grew up watching it from 91. It's a super bizarre movie. Dan Aykroyd is hilarious in it. Then we have Warner Archive. Eye of the Devil, which is one that I've always wanted to watch. Supposed to be a pretty great movie. Donald Pleasance is in this. I've heard lots of David Hemming, Sharon Tate. Yeah, this is going to be great. Devin Niven. So, yeah, this one I've heard lots of good things about. And I'm so happy to see that I got a Blu-ray. Jay Lee Thompson, too. A great director. Did lots of good stuff. Um, then we have Children of the Dam from Criterion, uh, the sequel to Village of the Dam, which we just covered. This is a, a movie that I've been interested in watching as well, and I just watched the original, so this one should be cool. Uh, yeah, very cool. And then, um, then we have some Criterions, The Incredible Shrinking Man by Jack Arnold, classic movie. Um, not seen this in a long time. Had the Arrow release, but now I have the Criterion. Then we have The Damned, um... Which, uh, yeah, is a Visconti movie. And uh, is this one that involves the Nazi stuff as well? And I've not seen, yeah, the Nazism. This one might be the one that sparked a lot of that stuff. I know it's Helmut Burgers in this one and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, definitely look forward to seeing that. And then we have Onibaba, which I've seen. Uh, I have the DVD, so this is a cool movie. Crazy Japanese folklore ghost story about a haunted mask. Uh, good stuff. So, yeah, I guess we're going to hop back to the video. All right, guys. Thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. Thanks.